Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Oscar. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend. Um, well, that depends. I don't know if this was solely your pick, Julio, so uh, that term <laughs> friend, maybe we, we're going to te- test the definition of that. Stress it, tax it, see if we come out the other side uh, still as close as we once were. We are here today to discuss 1991's Oscar with Sylvester Stallone, Sly's foray into comedy, and what a foray it was. Julio, we're not alone today, though. No, we're not. Uh, and that, that's, part of the, that's part of the reason why this episode came to be, why Oscar was picked. I think uh, it's listeners that have been paying attention for a while, they, they might have noticed that the weird... I don't know what to call it. You know, it's this sort of journey that we're having with uh, Sylvester Stallone and uh, and Kurt Russell. This it spreads across two podcasts. You know, because we did that sort of comedy classic as well, uh, Tango and Cash, and that prompted mm-hmm. our our good friends Ryan and Bartek from Spit Up Polish to somehow feel the 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 need to educate us and show us. Uh, a different kind of Kurt Russell vehicle. And so we went and we did Soldier on their uh, show. And then good old Ryan went and said, like, well, in order to experience the full, just, I don't know, the, to have the full Sylvester Stallone experience when it comes to comedy, you have to watch Oscar, which is a, a movie that they've tackled on their show. Hmm. And it just seemed, why not? Why would we mistrust the man that uh, used his patron power to make us watch Hancock? It just it seemed like a good idea to do this and of course an even better Pure idea evil. to have <laughs> an even better idea to have Ryan and Bartek here to to do it with us. because yeah, this is this is gonna be quite an undertaking. So welcome Ryan and Bartek. Uh welcome back to the contrarians. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm I'm Ryan, for those who haven't listened to our show before, and that lovely other voice is uh, Bartek. And yes, I am the one who very much campaigned for, for Oscar, but Bartek also, also a silent partner in the campaigning for this movie to be covered. So the, so the blame's shared. <laughs> the blame, that's an interesting word to use, yeah. Well, so this is, uh, I haven't listened to the episode you guys did on this movie because I literally, I just finished watching it like 30 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And now what I'm telling myself is that if nothing else, 
what I'll get out of watching Oscar is the ability to be able to listen to the episode that you guys made about Oscar <laughs> while knowing what's going on, what you guys are talking about. But still, I mean, it is... Uh, you guys have watched it, and now, and you just watch it again. So that that alone it yeah. speaks volumes about this movie. I don't want to get too much into real talk yet, but like, let's say, why Oscar instead of Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, for example? If we're talking about good questions, <laughs> good questions. So we on our show back in the day did a series called Unappreciated Masterpieces in which we talked about movies that either don't have uh, much uh, uh, of an audience or we think deserve more praise than they're actually given or are those type of films that you know you enjoy but you feel like needs to be discussed. There's this realm in podcasts and content making in which, say you're doing a Stallone thing, right? You do his best movies, his iconic movies, for good or bad, and stuff like Stop or My Mum Will Shoot... It's a bad movie, but it's one that everyone talks about. But when people talk about bad Stallone, they do mention Oscar, but no one ever actually talks about Oscar. <laughs> it's just one of those, throw it in there. And I was curious of that because I knew nothing of it when I picked it for our podcast. It was one of the few, if only, movies that I had no understanding of when I picked it. I picked it blind because I saw it had a semi-decent rating, an amazing cast, and a, and a well-respected, not at that point, but like a comedy track record director behind it. And so I was curious of what this would entail because nobody really discusses Oscar. They say it in the, how you guys did in your Tango and Cash episode. It is one of the other films in his catalogue that he did comedy for. And maybe it's probably bad. But that's the thing. Most people just kind of throw it in there yet rarely ever discuss it. And that is why we wanted to discuss it on our podcast. And then I heard you guys talking about Stallone on your Tango and Cash episode, and I have major disagreements on the interpretations <laughs> of Stallone. And when uh, it comes to this film, you guys kind of just talked about, like, I don't really know what that is. I assume it's bad. And I was like, well, let's actually kind of do delve into this. Oh, oh we, we will be delving into this. Alex, uh, thoughts? There's a lot to unpack there. But uh, I will... I will say that the nail was hit on the head with that in terms of Oscar, how no one really talks about it. It's, I know it. I knew the poster. Uh, I knew the VHS cover from years of going to the video store. And I knew it was a bad, like so, allegedly a bad comedy with Sylvester Stallone in it. But then, yeah, um, I honestly didn't really do much research until today. And when I just like pulled up on my phone, I'm like, who the hell else is in this movie? And then I was reading down the cast. I was like, oh. There's a lot of people in this, so this should be interesting. Yeah, it'll be. I'll be interested when we get to the second portion of this, our discussion on Stallone and I guess our uh, our misinterpretations of him as uh, <laughs> the 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 the, um, the gauntlet's been laid down. Julio, we we don't get sly. I guess is is the case. It's different interpretations <laughs> because Bartek and I on our episodes where we've talked about Stallone, we have differing viewpoints on him because. I think all of us have had different avenues of experience with Stallone. Different mm. eras, different mm. movies, different movies of his that are iconic have entered our lives at different points. Thus, we have a different understanding of him. But this is, uh, it's funny because you said that it was kind of like uh, decently rated or just halfway rated, but at least on Rotten Tomatoes, this baby's at yeah. 12%. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, talking about IMDb where it's like a six something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, um, Gene Siskel gave it three out of four stars. Well, yeah, I watched their video back in the day, 
when when they did it. Well, back in the day when we did the podcast episode, I watched them talk about it, and they really liked it. Both of them? Mm. I was hoping Eva would go yeah. like, it's yeah. hooey. It's hooey, Gene. Um, sorry, sorry, hoping? <laughs> hoping? If <laughs> Gene Siskel said he described the first reel as disastrous. He added that the film included truly funny work by enormously talented supporting players, while Roger Ebert was in full agreement with Siskel on Siskel and Ebert, and they gave it two thumbs up. Mm-hmm. So hey. there you go. Despite that, Oscar was nominated for three Razzies at the 12th Annual Golden Raspberries, Worst Actor, Worst Director, and Worst Supporting Actress. Who they nominated for that was Marissa Tomei and not <laughs> Homegirl. What's her name? Teresa. Who plays Teresa? Elizabeth Barondes. There you go. There you go. Elizabeth uh, Baron. Baron n- not going to work here anymore. She's the o- <laughs> she's the only cast member on the Wikipedia page to not have a hyperlink to her. <laughs> so, uh, in preparation for it, I did learn this was a remake of a um, was it an Italian film from the sixties. French, I think. French. Okay, there you go. Um, I take it none of us have seen that one. No. Nope. No. That's where Sly got some of his first work in the industry. He was a key grip on it. I'm making all that up. So uh, <laughs> moving right into everything. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, give us just a second here while we explain to any potential new listeners, as a, there's obviously a crossover market between the two of us here. So we may have some new, uh, new ears tuning in. So here on The Contrarians, Julio and I like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's our battle cry. Uh, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, that uh, a lot of times known as certified fresh, usually about 85% and above. And what we will do is argue that rating and argue it's certified fresh standard. Finding plot holes, examples of bad acting, things in movies that you know just don't add up, and maybe uh, why critics overrated it or uh, overpraised some of the uh, aspects of it. Conversely, on alternating episodes, we'll find a rotten film, uh, which this would qualify as that being 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. And what we do for those and what we're going to do for Oscar is point out its positive merit, the things that are good, maybe the underrated acting, good storytelling, uh, the hilarity that ensues in this one. Basically, just in a quest to prove that you can be contrarian about anything, you can be over the moon about anything you'd like, and that Rotten Tomatoes is a uh, heavily flawed system that... A lot of people just don't understand. So, Julio, that comprises the first portion of our podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. If listeners want to know how myself and you, and in this case, Ryan and Bartek, really feel about Oscar, they just have to hang around to the second half. That's correct. The second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, is where the four of us are going to tell each other exactly how we feel. No more pretending. Like I said, I haven't listened to the the Spit and Polish episode about Oscar, so I don't know. I have a feeling uh, how... Alex feels about this because he sent me a text when he was like maybe an hour into the movie so I have that <laughs> little bit of information and uh, and he probably has a feeling how he, he probably gets a hint of how I feel because I, I responded to that text uh, but that's about it and as far as Ryan and Bartek it could be anything I've been listening to their show for I feel like now it's gonna be at least a couple of years and uh, I, I still I don't know how they feel about the movies until they actually start talking about them so because uh, Ryan always, he always seems happy to talk about a movie. So <laughs> right now he sounds like he's really happy to talk about Oscar, but that doesn't mean that he likes Oscar. Uh, so we shall find out when we get to real talk. Uh, but first, uh, it's it's Contrarian's Corner, and to open Contrarian's Corner, uh, I have I have some uh, Run Tomatoes quotes, Alex. Unless you have something else that you want to clear uh, before we get into that. Uh, nothing more than just 
doing a round the table of how this was viewed. I'm curious if any of y'all own this. I uh, I bought uh, Rented, I guess is what you call it, on YouTube. And look looked good. I watched it um, out by the pool. It was a really nice evening here in Austin, Texas. So I sat out by the pool with my notepad and watched this movie and took notes. Uh, Julio, did you end up renting this from someplace as well? Or did you just go ahead and dive in and buy the Blu-ray? <laughs> it was tempting, but uh, no. I, I figured out I would give it just a... I give it the Amazon Prime try. So I, I read it on Amazon mm. Prime. Did not watch it by the pool. I watched it in my living room. <laughs> How did you come to it on the other side of the world, Ryan Bartek? Um, uh, you could say that I watched it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Because there's a version of it for free on YouTube. Yep. The one with the French dub. <laughs> no, no, no. The Straight up, just the films uploaded by someone on YouTube. It's got over a... Like, a was it over a million or over a mil- 11 million? Jesus. Yeah, a ludicrous amount. Uh, it's in like 280p or whatever. It's like in low res. But I watched... Yeah, but it, it looked fairly good. I watched this. I had my previous copy from when we did Spit and Polish back in the day uh, for, for this episode when we did our show. I still had that copy available. So it was just like looking through my catalog of movies being like, Oscar, 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 there it is. And then just plonk it in. And I watched it on my couch with my wife. And we were just, oh, we were just slapping our knee the whole time watching this one. I look forward to finding out what she said about it uh, in real talk as well. But what what we'll find out right now is what three critics said on Rotten Tomatoes, which honestly, not that many reviews. I think it's like 20 total, maybe. Uh, but still, 12%, which means that there were only two fresh ones, and they didn't have any quotes. But these are rotten quotes, uh, starting with Ken Hankey from Mountain Express, Asheville, North Carolina, who says, bad idea, badly executed. A bad idea, I mean, is he talking about like all the way back to the stage, or just a bad idea to remake a French adaptation of a stage play? Uh, let us know, Ken Hankey. Reach out. No one can read Hanky's mind on this one. We're going to have to just interpret Hanky's mind and determine if he's talking about the film itself, the original play, or even the French film. We don't know. So you're saying that that comment, that comment is badly executed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Choose a better, a better uh, quote, Mr. Hanky, for your own tomatoes uh, take. But here's somebody that elaborates a little more. Uh, Martin Scripps from Low IQ Canadian says, When you're looking to remake French cinema, the name Stallone leaps immediately to mind. As in, for God's sake, don't cast Sylvester Stallone. Uh, And then finally, Alex Sandel from Juicy Cerebellum says, This is why Stallone gave up on comedy. Did he give up on comedy, though? He did comedy after this. That's a false statement. Yeah. Yeah. Fake news. Fake news. It's objectively false. <laughs> so fake news, bad execution, and a really good name for the user. <laughs> All right, Oscar, directed by John Landis, written by the uh, pair. The screenplay, excuse me, was by the pair of Michael Barry and Jim uh, Mulholland, who they also penned the original Bad Boys. It was the other big credit I found that they had, which. It's so weird. The first Bad Boys came out in 1995, and like the world of 1991 versus 95, of course, is only four years separated. But good lord, it just seems like two very, very different points in time. Here nor there, on the weekend of April 26, 1991, audiences worldwide flocked in masses to go see Sylvester Stallone in a John Landis directed comedy with a budget of 35 million. 
the masses did not make up entirely that budget back as this film uh, made a box office return of a little under $24 million. And it is about Angelo Snaps Provolone, played by, of course, Sylvester Stallone. And he is like a prolific gangster, uh, mobster, and 1931 is the year, I believe. Um, do they say at any point geographically where they are? I don't, I don't think know. so. America. <laughs> Definitely America. <laughs> they talk about prohibition. I got the feeling it was supposed to be New York. Uh, yeah, yeah, if I, I had to I guess. I would guess New York or Boston or some shit like that. In the opening of the film, his father on his deathbed asks him, hey, get out of the, the crime life. You need to live straight. His father played by... Um, Spartacus. Spartacus himself, Kurt Douglas, excuse me. And we kind of get a taste here of what is to come. Uh, and that is kind of like this wave, this consistent wave of tonally inconsistent comedy as mm. Stallone, you know, is promising his dad whatever he needs and it's, you know, time to get out of the life of crime. And then uh, it ensues to where his father starts just smacking him about. It ends with his dad passing away after, of course, Snaps promises to get out of the life of crime. He, he believes he passes. He sits back up. He slaps him, and he finally his dad passes. And then we get Sylvester Stallone, fifteen years ahead of its time, the fourth wall Jim Halpert look into the camera. <laughs> as we now know, this is what we're going to be dealing with here for the next two hours. Stallone making a decided effort into completely immersing himself in this movie. It, his mannerisms in this are unlike any we get anywhere else uh, in Stallone's filmography. He really seemed to take to the character of Snaps. He, he appears to be having the greatest time and appears as though he believes he's making the greatest movie ever. He throws himself into it. He commits. He commits to the bit. It's a hell of a hook. I, I, I loved it. That's uh, just the, the elevator pitch that we reference here every now and then. It's just... Uh, how do you sell me the movie? Oh, well, there's a gangster, and his dad is is passing, and he makes him promise that he's going to give up the life of crime and go on the straight and narrow. Yeah, that sounds good. Who's playing the gangster? Sylvester Stallone. Sold. How much money do you need? Oh, and John Landis is directing? Mm. Even better. How did you guys feel, uh, Ryan Bartek, when you were watching it for the first time, and you too, Alex, I guess, when you realized that Sylvester Stallone is not Oscar? Oh, I, I, I had assumed that that would be the case. I don't know why. It was just one of those vibes I picked up early on that this is going to be a movie where Oscar's not actually a character, but a device for the plot because of the comedic sensibilities that the prologue had reminded me so much of the movies it's harkening back to, these these farces of the 1930s and 40s in which that kind of thing was a consistent. So I was more like, yep, this is this is the ride we're going to be in for. And that's how I felt this time around watching it. For myself, yeah, because we... I remember before we did the episode, we'd known about Oscar, planning to do Oscar for a few weeks. For myself, I only really knew what the poster was of him, like, you know, hanging off the clock. Um, hmm. And that name there, Oscar. So I just assumed, like, okay, he must be Oscar. But then when the film started and, you know, he was snaps, he was not Oscar, I, I accepted it. Um, <clears throat> and I think the beginning of the film really is just brilliant in every sense because 
you know, when it first starts, it just seems like, okay, this is going to be like a kind of somber mob movie, and mm. it kind of goes for that for like a minute or two, and then you get the smack, and that smack really is sort of for the audience as well, to say, <laughs> no, 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 that's not the kind of movie this is, this is the kind of movie this is, and then you get the smack again later on, and the, that's a, so you don't forget, that's <laughs> so we, the audience, also don't forget. And then, of course, we transition into that opening credits where, like you said, we have Sylvester Stallone first up and then everything else. And we have a man singing. A man is also what Sylvester Stallone is. So you can almost see that as like a metaphorical Sylvester Stallone monologue of, hey, I am the star here, but I have, you know, people that I worked with. Have a look through all these credits and you get this beautiful singing while it's all happening. Yeah, this little claymation pasta sauce man is singing the whole entire <laughs> opening, and it warms you up for what the movie's going to be like tonally, Fee-gut as off, well as the off, prologue. Exactly. The the prologue warms you up for the style of comedy, and then that opening credits lets you know what the movie you're getting is. It's like, if you didn't think the smacks were good enough for you, and Don Amici being in the scene as the priest, well, well, this opening credits is going to let you know, and especially when you see names that are comedy actors... Now you're definitely going to know Harry Shearer's in this movie. Yeah, it's going to be a comedy, guys. <laughs> so I it got to a point where almost like a Mel Brooks type joke. I I might be completely off base with this, but the opening credits took so long that I thought it was supposed to be like a bit of how long <laughs> the opening credits took to. And it seemed like they named every person and their direct family members in the opening <laughs> credits. Uh, even people that have like one line, like the the. Um, chauffeur that goes to pick up the the uh, the bag towards the end that dude i think has two lines and he gets an opening credit here so to me by the end of it i was already laughing that it it was taking the amount of time that it was (laughs) you went through all the stages you were uh you were confused then you were annoyed you were indignant and then you were amused again and then you thought it was great it's john what it reminded me of was the beginning of Spaceballs when the Star Destroyer shows up and it takes like 40 seconds for the whole ship to pass by. That's basically like the vibes I was getting here. All right. So if you've listened to The Contrarians before, you know, me and Julio do a deep dive into the plot of the films that we're covering. With this, we got a crowded kitchen today. So I'm going to kind of just walk us through the plot here um, and let uh, Julio and, of course, our guests uh, offer in their thoughts. I do have some notes and um, some thoughts to get in here, but... Uh, yeah, so just kind of taking it from where we left off as Snaps, uh, we're told we get the title screen one month later. He wants to stick to his commitment to live a straight uh, on the straight and narrow. He has his mansion and um, he's got all his boys there. The whole gang is here. We've got uh, Peter Reigert, Contrarian's favorite, Chaz Palminteri is there. And it's uh, like you already mentioned, Harry Shearer shows up. He's one half of... Um, the uh, Panucci's. Panucci's, yeah, the, the, they're his tailors. and So it's this cast of merry men, and it's a busy day as Snaps plans to meet with a, a group of bankers, as I believe the plan is he's going to donate a large sum of money to the, the bank in order to become on their board of trustees or uh, you mm. know one of the um, operators so that he can have these investments and have a real job and real life. And the, the acclimation process is obviously taking its time as all his uh, cronies and henchmen still call him boss. And he says, you know, call me snaps, that type of thing. But across the street, the, that we have Kurtwood Smith, Red Foreman, of course, 
and a few other gentlemen who represent the uh, federal agents. Uh, one of which is the guy who plays Babe Ruth in The Sandlot. I think his name's mm. Art Lafleur. He's in everything. That guy yes. is one of those character actors that, oh, it's that guy, of course. You may not remember everything he's in, but you go, oh, I know that face. He's reliable. He's in everything. <laughs> so, Lieutenant Toomey, Kurtwood Smith, is he's not bought that Snaps has removed himself. Mr. Provolone has removed himself from this life of crime. So, they're on a stakeout to just keep an mm-hmm. eye on what's going on. And what a day they picked, as it's quite the, the series of happenings. Um, before we really get into the meat and potatoes of... Well, the plot that unfolds and some of the characters that are yet to come into the fray. Uh, we'll start with you, Bartek, but just the establishing here of what the life that Snaps lives, lived, is hoping to live. But moreover, his uh, cronies and henchmen, all the familiar faces we mentioned, to you at this point, what what is on the, what was on the table? What what were you expecting to unfold from here, from a comedic or just even like an acting perspective? Um, well, the fact that you see that big entrance foyer area did remind me of, you know, theatre. You know, Ryan and I, we've done a lot of theatrical performances. Um, yeah. And so because this set, you know, was so big, so open, so, you know, the mise-en-scene was very rich, um, it did give this impression that, like, this is the hub of the film. Like, everything that happens in the film from this point onwards, it feels like it's going to be connected to this room. Um, and that sentiment, that notion did end up being true, which I thought that was a really cool thing. You just, you keep coming back to the room, um, and the plots develop from there. Um, and you see, you know, characters walking between the rooms, you get a sense of the geography, um, and it it felt like, yeah, this is, this is going to be a location that we're going to be very familiar with. Yeah, in movies like this, or even movies where it's like you have limited locations, and you may not be familiar that that's going to be the type of movie you have, there does come a point where you get that a shot of the place, and you know, like, as we're saying, the foyer here, the stairwell here. You, you, you understand, because of how movies work and how stories work, that, yeah, this is going to be the familiar place we're going to be. And then you start thinking about how most movies, and especially comedy movies, utilize that type of storytelling and so from there you can even extrapolate with also the performances we've seen thus far what type of comedic sensibility the film is going to bestow upon the audience from 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 here on out and that's just from visual that's just from a set from a location that you you get this sense from the film and that's pretty impressive for just what is a massive stairwell that does yeah it looks like something from stage but also looks like something from these old movies it looks like something from a gene kelly movie where he would dance down those stairs or something from my fair lady or something like that or all these old sets baby Mm, mm. None of that CGI bullshit. <laughs> this was the first feature film to be shot at uh, MGM Disney Studios, so they were just content to break in and use you know all they could sound stages and sets. And so, if nothing else, I am in complete agreement with that statement that the ambiance uh, is awesome and really makes it feel like an old timey movie and which what i believe is what the the goal is they're trying to pay homage to that so well i I think another aspect is just that they could have gone so wrong or at least they could have taken a different route when adapting this play and that is to go the opposite way right and it happens in so many adaptations and and sometimes that trips them up which is where they try to open up the play a little too much and it's this movie is not embarrassed of its of its roots of the fact that it is an adaptation of a stage story and so 
it's not afraid of just spending almost the entirety of its runtime in Stallone's house and Snap's house and, you know, different rooms and whatever. But I believe that it would have been a mistake to try to adapt it in a way that kind of turned the story into a sprawling trip throughout New York and you got to see action throughout more locations than the house the way that it is right now. Because you don't need it. This movie is, it's it's a comedy of errors and I think it's at its most powerful, the most concentrated it is. In this case, it's just in that house uh, with that cast kind of bouncing off each other part of the comedy is just see them exiting and, and going into those rooms and you know just interacting and then somebody else arrives somebody else leaves it's that's what makes it great and you have the cast to pull that over it chas momentary for me was kind of the big thing at the very beginning of the movie just seeing him there playing a gangster it just feels like good homemade food right i mean we've we've had him on the contrarians <laughs> before he was he was a gangster in uh bullets over broadway and uh Seeing him play a gangster is kind of like when you see Tom Zeisner play uh, uh, somebody in the army, right? It's just that yeah. that's right. That's how it's supposed to work. I mean, I, I have nothing against Chas Palminteri uh, flexing his muscles and playing something else. Like, I mean, we saw him in Jade and he was playing, a, was he a lawyer there? <laughs> but but really... And he can play cops sometimes too, right? Like he's in the usual suspect. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a tough guy, right? But here here he's a, he's tough. He's a gangster and, and then he gets to show some vulnerability. So it was great. Like, it, to he's me, a teddy that, bear. He's a real teddy bear of a guy in this movie. You just want to hug him, but then you're like, ooh, he might have a weapon in his jacket pocket. That he might, might still have a weapon. Hug him. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's setting up the whole notion of, like, you know, these are people from the criminal underworld, um, but now they have to kind of go straight and seeing, you know, what elements they're trying to suppress and what elements, you know, are still at play. Um, so you can imagine that, yeah, like, Connie would be, you know, the muscle. He might be threatening in other situations. But in this film, on this day, you know, he's kind of has to, you know, just be doing, like, simple bodyguard duty or, like, using his brain. Um yeah, Being a babysitter. Really yeah, and we also have the um the main uh guy who's kind of being forced into like the butler archetype. And that's <laughs> yeah, uh, Aldo. Um so yeah, it's fun to see all of these elements at play, you know, the criminal characters being, you know, domestic servants. Yeah, I really liked with Aldo as Alex was saying the setup of the movie at this point is you know, we walk into the house and we basically have Aldo there to explain to Anthony, who's the accountant, basically to explain, here's what the pitch of the movie is going to be. We're going to have this happen at this time, this happen at this time, and basically saying we're going to do all of this and the movie is going to derail all of these things and there's a time pressure. And him doing that sets us up, sets us up for how the acts of the movie is going to be, but we also understand that this is a movie of comedy of errors, so those things are going to get derailed and ruined and mucked about all over the place. And, of course, then he walks up the stairs and there's a whole big kerfuffle of, like, the boss likes things a certain way. Again, hammering in the comedy sensibility of the boss snaps. He is a man of particular needs and wants, and thus the comedy is going to come in because we're going to see his particular needs and wants be thrown to the side by all of these wacky characters that walk through that door. Again, a lot of the comedy in the film is people pressing the doorbell, just seeing a hand press the doorbell, and you as the audience go, oh no, who's this going to be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the lines I did really like too is uh, while Aldo, Peter Reitgard's trying to you know, learn his new duties, I think he pulls a gun out or something in the beginning or mm. makes a threat of some sort, and uh, Sly, Snap, says to him, you're a butler now. Buttle. 
And I thought that was really funny. <laughs> so we've covered, you know, what the front is and, and, and the frontline players, the, the ones that are going to get bloody going through the gate. Uh, and the accountant, Anthony, Vincent Spano, uh, the accountant for Snaps, shows up and he wants a raise. He's currently at $400 a month uh, or a week, excuse me, and he wants to bump that up to 1400 because he is in love and wants to uh, marry a woman that comes from a family of means and he wants to be able to provide what she's become accustomed to. Uh, we find out here that it snaps his daughter that he's in love with. Uh, they're actually lovers, as we find out, which he, I love that he um, he does the... <laughs> The preface of it's 1931, you know, got to be open-minded. Things are a little bit different in this day and age, but your daughter and I are lovers. And, of course, Snaps wants to kill him. He snaps. hey <laughs> So he goes to speak to his daughter about this because we've just spoken in very generalities. You know, pronouns, pal. Uh, we haven't actually spoken names we don't he, he's not entirely sure who we're speaking of here but he believes it to be his daughter so the first thing he does is goes and confronts his daughter enter marissa tomei oscar-winning actress marissa tomei everyone <laughs> one year away from winning her academy award for my cousin Vinny, and <laughs> surprisingly it didn't come from this because marissa tomei and uh one other actor we'll get to uh, towards the end of the film she more than Almost anyone in this, to me, it struck me as I don't really care what else is going on elsewhere, but I have this opportunity, so I, I am going to seize this moment. And she did all she could to ensure yeah. that the uh, character of Lisa Provolone was was remembered. I yeah. think Marissa Tomei, as an actress, in this film and every film I've seen her in, her strength is she has really great chemistry, whether it be comedic or romantic or platonic, with every other actor she's in a scene with. She and Stallone work really well together in their scenes here when he walks up there. I thought, wow, she's actually really good. And, you know, like she's still starting out as an actress. She's a year away from an Oscar-winning role. But, like, wow, here she is facing up against Sly himself, and she stands her ground. Well, it's also a very, uh, I guess, generous performance in the sense that she... She seems like she's more in her element uh, in comedy. And, you know, that's obviously I'm saying it from the year 2021, where I know kind of the scope of her career and how she's mostly known as a funny actress, the way that Stallone is mostly known as a as, a, as an action star. And yet she manages to, to make it all work. You know, I mean, Stallone is doing everything he can, and he's great. But if she wanted to, I think that she could have just out comedied him in a way, right? Because she's the experienced yeah. one here. But instead, no, she manages to keep things level and, and it's just this very nice back and forth between somebody that's used to doing comedy and somebody that's used to doing action but has the talent to do comedy. And it, it was just great yeah. seeing them work really well together. Uh, the other thing, though, and the, the very specific challenge that I guess the movie has, and maybe you could say even the downside of casting Marissa Tomei as this specific character is that the, the joke about snap's daughter is that throughout the entire movie they're gonna have trouble finding somebody that will marry her which when you look at marissa tomei you're like mm -hmm. how is that a problem right like that's the, your first reaction but the fact is that the story is so well written every single time 
it justifies why someone would not want to marry Marissa Tomei. Exactly right, because she lies in later on about being pregnant, and then you know all of these people thrust into wanting to be in a relation, being in a relationship with her, either don't know her, are already in love, or find out she has a child and or is the daughter of a ruthless gangster. Exactly. She's also seventeen. Wait, it was nineteen thirty-one. Yeah. Oh, fun fact: <laughs> this film tells us that Marissa Tomei is Stallone's daughter straight away. While in Tango and Cash, Terry Hatcher, who's the exact same age as Marissa Tomei in real life, is Stallone's sister in Tango and Cash. <laughs> Just factor that in your brain for a while. It's Hollywood math. <laughs> and there yet the go. mother in Oscar's only nine years older than Marissa Tomei. So wouldn't you know it, that's not the daughter he was referring to as the character of Teresa, who... Was she like a, a maid? I, I guess I didn't catch where she fits into the no, equation. No, she just met. Uh, she just met Anthony separately outside of any of the events of this movie, and she used the alias of Snaps as background because she saw him on the newspaper for apparently trying to reform himself. So she adopted the okay. alias of being his daughter. But she's not wealthy. She is uh, not from means, but she was so smitten with Antony that she wanted to present as though she came from a wealthy family, and so presents herself as Snaps' daughter. And Stallone, of course, you know, it's not even, he hasn't even had his fucking Wheaties yet. It's not even 10 a.m., and he's having to deal with all this. So now he's not sure who his daughter's in love with. It's just a, a tangled mess here. And like was already mentioned, Marissa Tomei, uh, Lisa fakes a pregnancy just because she wants to get out of the house. Sure. I guess that is a, <laughs> certainly one way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I did want to call out that I absolutely lost my mind over is mm -hmm. that during an argument with Snaps and Lisa, uh, Chaz Palminteri runs in because he thinks you know the boss is in duress and he pulls his gun out. And at this point, Snaps tells him, get rid of that and get rid of any other weapons you have, which turns into like this little moment of like almost three stooges uh, yeah. of him, Monty Python type stuff of him just pulling out all the weapons you can imagine from pockets you didn't even know he had. That's not what killed me. What killed me is that in Lisa's room on like her nightstand or her dresser is an 8 by 10 of Stallone that looks like a promotional <laughs> shot from Oscar, like the the tour they're doing for it. Um, or, the, you know, the headshot you get with the press kit type thing. Yeah. And it's in I black and white and... I, yeah, I absolutely lost it for that. <laughs> Little details like that, I I lost appreciate. it during their conversation before that where uh, he's chastising his daughter and he's just like, oh, so you're you're sleeping around before marriage. It's this modern media that's affecting you. Don't think I haven't read the lyrics to Minnie the Moochie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's revealed that Oscar, finally, I have the name right here, Oscar is the father of the this imaginary baby, because Oscar is the man that Lisa's in love with. We find out that he was um, Snaps' his chauffeur. Why did he get fired from the gig? I think it's just because he was incompetent. He stole his gabagool. That's why he fired him. <laughs> uh, this complicates matters further. Stallone is not happy about this, but this is where we hear the name Oscar and now become curious about the case. It really... It, it seems as though Lisa, she may, it turns out she doesn't, but she may in the moment have loved Oscar. But it, again, her character's motivation is just whatever it takes to get out of this house. I will marry it if it means I get to get out of this house. Right. So at this point in the story, 
we have the story or rather like the objective Stallone just keeps getting more and more uh, I guess tennis balls oranges whatever you know your choice of object to juggle is but you know he just keeps like throwing a new, a new one in the air because he has to deal with the fact that uh, as far as he knows his daughter is pregnant with uh, his drivers his ex-drivers baby but then also and, and now he needs to find somebody to marry his daughter because there's no way she can have the the kid at a, you know mm. without being married but then he also has uh bankers coming in at noon to just swear him in i guess you know to make things official he has yeah. uh his his accountant anthony believing that he's going to marry his daughter and also kind of he has admitted that he stole fifty thousand dollars from stallone and that you know Stallone's gonna get that back when he marries his daughter, and then he has uh, he has the Finucci's throughout the entire movie. They keep trying to just tailor this suit towards him. That's four things already. Uh, and then of course he has to train his his underlings to behave like like proper people, not criminals. And this is skipping so much because there's also like moments in which. Anthony is under the they're under the assumption Anthony is the father of the fake baby, and then he tries to get Anthony to marry her because of that. But then he realizes that the baby isn't Anthony's, but he still tries to trick Anthony to marry her so that he can get the money that has been converted into jewels, precious jewels. <laughs> and it's just it keeps unraveling and unraveling like that. Yeah, and while all this is happening, he also has the police and another like family trying to mess with him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So all this is like Stallone is like right there in the middle. Like every time that there's a new development, I mean, he has to be there. I think, I, I guess, well, he's not in the scene where it cuts away to the cops but for the most part everything revolves around Stallone and that's what makes it really impressive that this guy that's from an action movie background is able to just stand there and just constantly react and not just uh, react to all these things but kind of react with different degrees of uh, indignation or ingenuity because I I mean I'll be honest when the movie started I thought that I knew exactly how Stallone was going to play this character it's like oh he's, he's a tough guy because you know I had that just kind of bias knowing where he was coming from but the truth is that snaps is not that tough i mean he's not somebody that seems to try to resolve things uh with violence most of the time i know part of it is that yeah he's trying to to become uh redeem himself redeem himself and just you know honor the promise he had to his father but but i was impressed that so much of it was just him trying to outsmart these problems coming at him you know he he tries to mm trick Anthony into, you know, signing over the, the money to him and he's trying to trick his daughter <laughs> into marrying someone that, that she has never met. And it was it was all a lot more ingenious than I expected from from a character played by Sylvester Stallone, where I would just generally assume that he was just going to constantly be losing his temper and using his fists. And if he wasn't doing it, then he was going to use someone else to do it for him. But no, it was, I was pleasantly surprised to see him just kind of keeping up and being more of a, more of an intellectual protagonist. So you guys actually did a good job of kind of uh, discussing the, the interwoven, um, the, the snake that is the story and even the more so the snake that is snaps because he figures out that, Anthony's lying about it being his daughter, uh, not lying about, but in the fact that it's not actually his daughter, so he can take advantage of this situation. Mm. So in doing so, he arranges a situation where, through just like manipulation, gets his money back and the, has Anthony sign over that he's going to marry his daughter, Lisa, and mm. basically take care of her unborn child. 
I'm not entirely sure if those documents they fill out would be held up to too much legal scrutiny, but hey, they had a witness sign. <laughs> yeah, and he yes. just signed and he just signed X because he can't write. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it goes to show more so than any other part up until the film at this point that Snaps is smarter than all these people and he's going to get his way no matter what. So there's an arranged marriage on the table between Anthony and Lisa. They don't like each other at all, and not in a fun, odd couple way. They just don't. So they're immediately just trying to figure out how to get out of this situation. Yeah, have separate honeymoons even. Yeah. My note here says, God bless Marissa Tomei. She's trying, and she <laughs> she really is going for it, specifically at those scenes in the courtyard, like outside. Yeah. She just She's playing to the, the person in the last row of the building. Um, a wild Tim Curry appears with an exceptional middle part, and he is the diction coach for Snaps, and is very meticulous and enunciative with yes, his words. Yes, elocution and- lessons. <laughs> he, uh, it's not at this part, but I'm going to forget about it if I don't bring it up now, but he says to Chaz Palminteri at some point, you must be careful, you have a dangling participle, and Chaz Palminteri <laughs> looks down to make sure that his dick isn't out of his face. <laughs> He's got a lot of fun literacy jokes. Yeah. yeah. In almost no time here, Thornton Poole is Tim Curry in this film. Yes, Dr. Poole, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony's able to finesse a situation in which Poole and Lisa, he basically just like pawns her off to him. He's like, I don't want to do this. You take this. It's basically like texting your buddy to take your shift at work when you're in college. (laughs) Like, hey, I don't want to do this. Can you do it for me? Uh, Yeah, you owe me like a case of beer type thing. But Poole and Lisa actually have some pretty substantial chemistry. Um, I can't remember. I just watched this movie also. But we do get at least one scene of Tim Curry trying to teach diction to Sylvester Stallone. Yes, correct? You we, have we to. do. And it's great. And the only way he can get through the R's is to make it all gangster references. Yeah. You know, like, yes, 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 yes. Grabbed out his Roscoe and shot in all of that. And then Stallone's like, he gets it perfectly. He's like, see, now you're talking sense. <laughs> This is when the movie goes from whatever it is to great. Because if you ever put Tim Curry in a production, you're going to be entertained. And boy, is he fucking great in this movie. Tim Curry dominates the screen every time he's on it. He's doing so many physical gags, but also we love his voice, right? Like, just Tim Curry saying, baby, just gets a laugh out of you. Because he's just, he's got that voice, he's got that expression... And he he is the champion of the movie, for me at least. He's like the guy that you go, oh, well, Tim Curry's here. I'm going to be entertained because has he ever let you down? Ever? No. It's no. Tim Curry. Exactly. I think it's also like such a smart way for the filmmakers, whoever came up with this idea, to address kind of like the elephant in the room, which is something that you... you you referred to earlier, Ryan, which is that Stallone, I mean, he has a very particular way of talking and it's not something that lends itself to the sort of rapid fire dialogue, uh, convoluted dialogue even that that this movie is all about. And so I felt like it was a very smart way. I don't know if this is something that wasn't a play or something that was added for the movie because they knew that they had cast Stallone. But basically the, the filmmakers acknowledging straight to the audience hey we know that stallone is just having trouble with the dialogue and look at least we're gonna make it count for a good gag and it's great it's one of the best scenes in the movie and stallone is game for it which is great you know i could just see how uh Mm. somebody with a bigger ego would have said "Uh, no i'm not gonna do this scene where you're making fun of the way i talk 
but but he was he was good. He was great in it. He obviously was was happy to just run with the gag. So so that was good. Tim Curry and then Stallone that was just humble enough to take a few shots at himself. That's great. Well, of course, if there's one person that's known for lack of ego, it's Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, remember in Tango and Cash? Oh, yes, yeah, so I remember Tango and Cash. He made fun of Rambo. Yeah, that's that's literally what I was going to bring up. Yeah, it's uh, during this kind of back and forth and the discovery of the chemistry that lies with Lisa and Poole that I just because my note is in all caps. She's seventeen because they say that at one point, like she she'll be eighteen in no time. I'm like, well, that kind of changes the dynamic of a lot of what's going on here. But uh, all right, Bartek, I'm going to bestow upon you the honor of explaining Mm -hmm. the bag situation (laughs) so there are three or is it four bags there's they're like they're three okay they're black leather handbags you could even use them as like a a briefcase type gimmick but so bartek explain to us (laughs) explain it to me like i'm five years old uh there's one bag that belongs to a maid one that belongs to Anthony and one that belongs to Snaps. And it's basically like the magic trick with the three cups. They all just keep getting shifted around. So to the best of your recollection, break down to us the saga of the bags. Sure. So there's a little bit of context before all that. So the plot with the maid is that she is quitting and she is moving to um, a different gangster's place to, I think, marry him. So like she's going to you know, be wealthy now. Um, and so the bag that she packs, which is this type of black bag, has her clothing in it. That's the first bag. Um, and the other two bags originate from Anthony. Yeah. The first bag that he has is the one with all of the jewels in them. The precious jewels. Um, the precious jewels, <laughs> which is uh, the first bit of money that he stole from Snaps. Um, and he intends to give those jewels to, you know, his wife when he marries her, as if in a way to, like, not only return it, but also to give it to the one he loves. Mm. Um, and then I believe later on, um, after Sylvester Stallone has, you know, kind of taken that from him as a trick, uh, he he has a bit about t- talking about how he has sentimental attachment to those jewels and he wants to buy them back for an equal amount of money, which he also stole uh, from snaps and that that money is in uh, the third bag hmm. um, but that bag of money doesn't come in until a little bit later in the film so at this point it's mainly just the clothes and the jewels yeah. and the first time the bags are you know in the same place is when the maid comes in to say hey I'm leaving she you literally get a camera shot of her putting the bag down next to the other bag hmm. um, it's like oh okay from from our perspective her bag is on the right. Then blah, 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 scene happens, cut back, she picks up the other bag, the one that's to our left. So obviously, you know, we know where this is going. There's going to be some funny stuff with uh, the change. Well, don't forget the police are involved too that make the gag funny because they're constantly seeing this one black bag to them going in and out, in and out, over and over and over again. Like, they're dropping stuff, they're dropping illegal money. That's yeah, the, the the cops the cops's plot in this film is basically that uh, they are taking note of everyone who is coming and going, how many times people are coming and going, and they are noticing you know all three black bags, but they're assuming that there's only one. Yeah. So for a while now, the the plot of the black bags is basically that Snaps wants to use the jewels to you know bribe uh, Tim Curry, but he keeps ending up. 
you know, showing him the clothes and getting very Women's upset. underwear. Yep. Probably Tim Curry's best scene to me, which is, look at this. <laughs> I've got money. And he's just like flailing these women's underwear around like he's Here's just like- Here's a $20 bill right here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, look at that. Mm, money. Well, you know, you know it is money because at the end a banker steals one of them. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, he invests in it. Thank you. I, I thought it was great that they that it happened twice. Like the, the first time, I thought it was pretty funny. I saw it coming, and uh, mm. but then the second time, it just wasn't funny. Just because oh, it's it's meant to be money, and it's actually uh, close. But just because the disbelief in Stallone's face mm. that it happened again, <laughs> like there is no, you know, yeah. Chad Terry is supposed to have been watching that bag, and yet somehow it all happened again. It it was just yes. great. Well, that's the that's the second part. Uh, Unless I missed uh, this elsewhere, it's one of two times in the movie where Sly breaks the fourth wall because yeah. <laughs> um, Palminteri implies maybe it was a miracle. You know, like he makes some analogy, I believe, to something biblical. And then Stallone just like turns to the camera like, can you believe what I have to deal with here? <laughs> yeah. Which was not all that common in the early 90s. So I just imagine. But very common in the 30s and 40s with movies. <laughs> so. And yes. in theater. In this particular case, it, I'm just imagining, you know, Joe Sixpack, who it was the first movie he had seen in 10 years. And he's like, why is that fucker looking at me? I don't like that. <laughs> um, so this movie has two great uh, uh, bits of uh, what I call uh, Three's Company sort of gags. More so like the one I'm about to talk about, because, you know, yeah, you have the, the thing with the with the suitcases. That it's just it runs through the rest of the movie. They just keep going in and out of the house and people keep grabbing their own suitcase, which is great. That's just like such a stage thing but then there's this concentrated uh, bit of confusion uh, involving the uh, the Finucci's which I just I lost it and it might be my best like my favorite part in the movie because uh, when uh, Stallone is trying to intimidate Anthony into something I think it might be giving him the money because by mm-hmm. then they've decided that he's not marrying his daughter but anyway he's trying to intimidate him about something and then tells him that the Finucci's who've been there the entire day just trying to get this suit on Stallone, he tells them that they're actually contract killers because uh, Anthony is like, you're not going to do anything to me. You're trying to, you know, be a, a, an upright citizen. And Stallone says, well, yeah, I am, but they're not. Yeah. And he points at them. And he's like, they're like the most vicious killers in the industry. And what ensues once Stallone leaves is just this conversation between Anthony and uh, and the Finucci's where they, they are talking about their job as tailors. And he keeps reading it as, as them talking about their job as hired assassins. And it's just great. It's just that the dialogue is yeah. perfectly crafted to where we know what they're talking about. But of course, it could be easily read as something else. And that's, again, like, mm. like in the best Three's Company episodes, you know, it's like, it's just hilarious. And, and, and I love that it never really, uh, you know, it doesn't end with them, with Anthony figuring out the truth. It's just like, by the end of that scene, he still thinks that they're hired killers. So that was great. Yeah, they do a tough thing in that scene too, which is, they use a joke from early in the movie, which is them showing off their picture that's made them famous of the gangster that's been shot down in, in, you know, in a restaurant, and, but he's wearing their suit. And they show that early in the movie, and that's a gag on its own. And then the tough thing is reintroducing that, new, that old gag that we've already had a chuckle at and transforming it into a new joke because in that sequence they further intimidate uh, Anthony by showing him 
the picture. But they're talking about it like this is our work in terms of our tailorship. But he's just seeing a, a machine, like a machine gun body. And he's just terrified. And we get a big chuckle out of it because we've seen this joke done before. But now it's been transformed into something new. So Father Clementi shows up. I guess just to do a, a check-in of some sort. I, it honestly seems like Snaps has people in and out all day. and Heavy lies the crown type thing. Uh, but this part was awesome because it's literally you know checking in. This is your previously on Oscar moment <laughs> where Snaps and his wife have a back and forth to catch up on the plot of the movie. They're like, she's not my daughter, but you know I pretended she's my daughter. Uh, and now uh, Lisa's going to get married to Poole. And uh, Father Clemente has the tr- <laughs> has the awesome line of, uh, and I actually wrote it down. He just goes, "This is all very confusing," and it just puts you in. Uh, he's speaking for you, the audience member, but the movie is doing it in such a way that it shows, "Hey, we know that, but we're just having fun here. So we're just trying to give you a little moment to breathe, and we can bring everyone up to speed, and we'll just keep it going from here." Uh, a very great moment of self aware comedy. Uh, Chaz Feldman Terry has a moment like that too that just just cut to my heart, which is uh, it's just a little bit later when he's uh, he's talking to Stallone. Somebody's going to talk to Stallone. They want to talk to him in private. So Stallone looks at, at Feldman Terry and is like, you know, you got to go. <laughs> and then Feldman Terry says, can I stay, boss? Because every time I leave, I fall behind. Yes. He has, he, he has a nice little arc of like being really proud of the fact that he's starting to follow the plot. Yeah, and by the end, he's kind of got a little heroic ending because he understands things more so than anyone else. <laughs> yeah. So Snaps meets with the the mansion's new maid, as we discussed the out with the old and with the new dynamic. Uh, her name is Roxy, and as it turns out, she was uh, she took Snaps' virginity in a previous life. And, <laughs> I mean, you would think that's a pretty memorable thing, but it takes him a minute to recognize her. Uh, she used to work for the mob boss that broke Snaps into the business. And so she's there now. We learn quickly, you know, she has a daughter and uh, her daughter's engaged and she really mm-hmm. likes who he's engaged to. And this is uh, just one of y'all mentioned, the the Chaz Palminteri figuring out the plot, where it's going before everyone else does. <laughs> as comes to be that Roxy is the mother to Teresa and she was the love child of Snaps and herself. So all that for nothing. She really was his daughter. Yeah, and Roxy... <laughs> had the life that Marissa Tomei is trying to get. She was sent away to 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 live with the nuns and all of that and have the child there. Like another mirroring and parallel of these two daughters in a way. This was a the the big Shyamalan twist for me. I mean I don't know if uh if it was just <laughs> if it hit anybody else as hard, but I even though I felt like I should have seen coming seen it coming, it it, it was just that's where I was floored and I had to pause the movie and kind of like just redo it because it's like you said she was his daughter all along which means that like I was trying to recontextualize the relationships now that we know that bit of information because I'm like well can Anthony still marry her I was trying to like figure it out to see if if that was a good thing or a bad thing and uh, thankfully it's a good thing and and the movie kind of like makes it clear because it just everybody seems pretty happy about it even Stallone's current wife uh, seems uh to kind of like take the news in stride yeah, well, family is very important in the Italian culture, so it makes sense. Yeah, and I also appreciate the reveal of her being his real daughter 
makes that running gag throughout the movie where he keeps saying that he has this other daughter and then clarifying that he doesn't, it makes that gag even better. It's like, oh, actually, ironically, you didn't know this, but actually, you were actually saying the right thing throughout the whole movie. Yeah, the one character who knew the truth, like, didn't come in until right near the end to, like, give us that reveal. So this is kind of what the culmination of everything that's happened in the movie. This is the big crescendo of where now it's a party because, you know, the family's here. We're, uh, both my daughters are going to get married. All great. Uh, but we lose track of time. And again, it's not even noon. And Sly's like, all right, line up the drinks. <laughs> it's time to celebrate. And it's conceivably like a Tuesday. And so it's just out of control. Uh, you get an insight to the day-to-day operations of uh, one snaps provolone. So the bankers show up, and the the big meeting is to be had. They're going to go over the contract and the terms and conditions, the the user agreement to Mm. Stallone donating this money to the uh, bank and what their working arrangement is going to be moving forward. But this sets into motion one, uh, Lieutenant Toomey, Mm. he sees these bankers coming in and thinks they're part of another organized crime family. So that was amazing. Time time (laughs) to move in on this. He uh, says, I'm going to call the gentleman of the press first because he basically wants to prepare his own publicity yeah i want to flag there's a running gag that i noticed when we first watched this movie bartek and i and i notice how it's even woven in stronger which is every time we cut back to kurtwood smith there's more pigeons on the windowsill and (laughs) the first time he's there he just smacks one off and you see kurtwood smith he like fucking smacks this bird off but by the end there are like five pigeons at the windowsill and he's just like let's go and he like throws his arms in the end they all fly away and i thought that was a really small but very fun little detail added to his character well they kind of have to keep you uh in a way, it's a movie reassuring you that don't worry, we will get. We haven't forgotten about Kurtwood Smith. I know he wasn't as big back then, but still, he was a, a recognizable actor. He did RoboCop by then, here didn't he? RoboCop would have already come and gone, and this is mm. to me, this is the moment in the movie, I guess, where the, or at least in the filming of it, where the switch flipped over in Kurtwood Smith's head, and he realized RoboCops don't grow on trees. I need to seize this moment. <laughs> Because for the closing of this movie, he is the star. Yep. Um, the the climax here, where he's he comes in and he's calling the shots and he's telling it like he, you know, this guy's this guy and this guy's this guy, and um, he's just so proud of himself with everything that he does. Uh, but he's not the only one tipped off to this meeting, hmm. as a stuttering local gentleman. Five Spot Charlie, was that what they called him? I do believe, um, and he works for uh, the great gangster Vendetti. Vendetti, what, just <laughs> you, a terrific name. Do, do you get it? Because he has a vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> Vendetti believes that Snaps is meeting with um, rival uh, mobsters. Yeah. I guess, I don't know if his fear is that they're going to make a pact and run him out of town, but he decides at this moment when he gets the word of these bankers showing up, not knowing who they are, that they're going to strap up and roll in there and you know take care of the situation. So they, they come packing with the intention of killing Snaps and his whole crew. Um, despite everything seemingly going wrong for the prosecution or the uh, arrestable offenses here that Lieutenant Toomey has, Kurtwood Smith then, you know, he, he literally strokes his chin in curiosity <laughs> and then says, I got it, the bag. And after all that, with all the um, turmoil and suspense surrounding the three different bags, he the one he finds is the one with the women's panties, long johns, hose. I don't, I don't know what's in it. It's just a, 
a bag of curiosity, but it's certainly not what he thought it was going to be, either with the diamonds or the, the cash itself. He could have conceivably put Snaps away, but uh, in the end here, Snaps, Sylvester Stallone prevails as he's the smart one. And then outside, you know, just to make matters even better for himself, the Vendetti and his whole gang get arrested because they didn't they crash into Kurtwood Smith's car and they just have a bunch of Tommy guns and shit. It's a head on collision. It was it was very satisfying that the movie allowed Kurtwood Smith to at least get a win, even after being embarrassingly incompetent when he was facing Stallone. <laughs> like I was, I mean, I was great. Like on on the comedy side, I I thought it was just wonderful that they allowed Kurtwood Smith to have one of the bag moments. Right, Stallone gets the first two. You know, there's a third one coming because good things come in threes. But it wasn't Stallone emptying the bag of underwear; it was Kurtwood Smith, and that just made it even sweeter. Uh, and then, but then he still wins because he gets to arrest the other mobsters that were coming to to kill Stallone. So you know, happy endings all around. He gets his picture taken and everything. Yes. Yeah, and of all the characters that like did not, of all the main players that didn't uh, enter the house throughout the film, he was the one that we cut back to the most because. Uh, his reactions to people entering and leaving, you know, was one of the most, you know, uh, obvious things to see. So it's nice that that character does get some sort of conclusion. And also, I mean, since we're just kind of like in, in that final sequence, it's uh, I was surprised that Anthony turned out to be useful because I thought that the movie had kind of like painted him as, I mean, I guess somewhat resourceful, but also, you know, kind of like a shady way. The fact that he kept like stealing from Stallone. I was like, I yeah, thought he's a weasel. The, he's a weasel. Yeah, he's he's a weasel. Exactly. And uh, but then he comes up and it turns out that he's looking out for Stallone's best interests. I mean, I guess he's going to be his father-in-law now. So uh, mm. and that was great. That was I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the fact that Anthony contributed to Stallone kind of getting one over the, the bankers and not signing papers that were actually going to put him in a in a position that he didn't really want it uh, in that bank where he was really not going to have any power. Mm. So to have Anthony be the suddenly finally be useful to uh, boss Provolone, uh, that was that was really nice. Again, like I said, happy endings for everybody involved except of course the bankers and uh, Vendetti. And Vendetti. So this leads to the wedding of the century. It's a double wedding. Again, very much like White Christmas style, in what you guys said, homage to the bygone era. Yeah, of Secret movies. Life of Walter Mitty, um, where they just get married and then he gets a promotion and it ends. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the brilliance of the the movies of that time. Climax happens, the movie immediately ends. <laughs> That's something that so many people of today could take note from. Uh, mm-hmm. But the double wedding goes on. Poole and um, Lisa get married. Meanwhile, Teresa and Anthony tie the knot. Marissa Tomei's hair is absolutely just flawless in this sequence here. As is Don Amici's facial hair. It's very nice. <laughs> yes. And he does raise the question, if anyone believes these people should not be wed, speak now, forever hold your peace. And then we get the aristocrats because <laughs> someone comes in and says, I object. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Oscar. And then, you know, snaps, tells the boys to carry him off. But that was the payoff to the the whole Oscar joke. It was good enough in the sense that I had forgotten the movie was called Oscar and we didn't know who Oscar was up until that point. So I let out a, a pretty decent howl when that went down. Uh, the only thing that would have made it better is if it was somebody that we knew, like in the real world. I mean, like, you know, if it was a, a known actor. Tim Robbins. Oh, I disagree. I thought it was actually pretty good that it was just an unknown. Because throughout the movie, we've had very well-known actors. So at that point, you're trained to expect a very well-known one to come. And then it's just some guy. Just some it's guy. It's one of the two writers, I think. Really? There you go. Yeah, yeah it Jim, is. It's... Jim Mulholland. 
Good call. Yep. Okay, so it is someone. <laughs> Just not someone that we knew. Yeah, when Alex said the name way earlier in the episode, I'm like, wait, isn't that the actor that played Oscar? And it was. So it takes us out. We get the big, the end screen, and we fade to the influence of the late 80s, early 90s, because we get the sitcom opening closing credits with the short video clips of everyone involved. Really just wish the Growing Pains theme would have been playing over this. But well, that's also something they used to do in the 30s movies as well. Like, in its defense, to me, it actually had a lot of visuals of those old movies where it's like, did you know Humphrey Bogart was in this? Well, here he is. In case you didn't remember, here's a footage of him being in this movie in case you had forgotten. Uh, and then I kind of was just, I got on my phone or I finished my notes after the video credits ended. So I still had it going. And then I looked up right as the credits were ending and, at the end of the credits, it's like in a very special thanks to, and then it lists people. One of them is Max Landis, and I was like, "Ooh, oh, no. this didn't age so well." <laughs> you know, he could still thank a child. It's not that he knew his child grew up to be someone bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that. It's like every movie we watch with the Weinstein Company logo at the beginning. Now it's like, look, yeah, this is still fine, but look, this that, is a movie made cool. by a Landis that's responsible for the death of a few people. I think we have a worse Landis to worry about. <laughs> Tremendous. All right, that was Oscar Contrarian's Corner Edition. It was exhausting. Now, now it gets interesting. Let's go to real talk, Alex. Are you sure there was cash in that bag? Yeah, little Anthony stole it. If little Anthony stole it, then he's got it. No, you blockhead, he stole it, then he gave it back to me. Why'd he give it back to you? To buy back the jewels. What jewels? The jewels he stole from me. He stole jewels from you too? Yeah, so he could marry my daughter. Lisa. That Lisa Teresa. How come nobody's never met this daughter, Teresa? Because she's not my daughter, capiche? Yeah, your daughter's not your daughter. And the cash that used to be the jewels is now your underwear. Now you got it. I got it. I don't even know what I'm talking about. And we are back. But before we go into real talk, we're going to let uh, Ryan and Bartek take a quick bathroom break while we barrel through PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect on our very own patron channel. And we let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. And also, this is where we welcome new patrons whenever they join the Contrarian Supplements family. And that's the case today, as we welcome new patron Brandon Curtis the ham sandwich man himself. We, it's like we summoned him uh, with, with our mentions uh, on the Baby Driver episode. Welcome, mm-hmm. Brandon. He already, he's chomping at the bit to make us watch uh, Bollywood movies. Okay. Which, it's happening. I mean, he has, now he has the power. So, <laughs> the rest of you patrons expect uh, a patron-exclusive Bollywood uh, episode fairly soon yeah he was always really into those he would tell me like this is the bollywood version of you know x remember there's one like the bollywood version of warrior yeah like okay and so we'll see what he brings to the table we'll watch the bollywood version of something maybe the <laughs> bollywood version of oscar there you go can only get better but in addition to whatever it is that brandon curtis decides to make us watch you have other exclusives such as uh this month Alex decided that we were going to watch Hocus Pocus, so just look on your on your feed for that sometime this October. We also have QVRs for Red Light. I'll be doing a quick video review of Red Light uh, or Red Lights. This sort of a Robert De Niro movie. I don't know. I haven't watched it yet, but it, it will happen. And Alex is going to be doing a quick video review of Riders of Justice, the Matt Mickelson movie. And then, you know, we have the, the other stuff. We have the deleted scenes, the cutting room floor 
clips that didn't make it into the episode. And man, this recording of Oscar, we're halfway through already. And I know that we're going to be chopping it up because there's four of us and we all have a lot to say. <laughs> so yes. a lot of it's going to make its way to, to the Patreon channel. And then our pre-recording notes. And of course, Contrarians After Hours. Our little patron spinoff where we tell you about other things we've watched, other things that we've read, other things that we've played. Uh, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? I could have sworn we had talked about it at some point in time, but I guess not. So we're going to be speaking of David Fincher's 2007 crime horror thriller, Zodiac, being, of course, with the uh, recent news that they think they figured out who the Zodiac was, uh, and also being that it's October, so scary movie every day. I found a fitting opportunity to watch Zodiac last week, and I don't know, man. It, every time I watch it, it gets higher up the Fincher chain for me. So uh, I don't know if we've ever actually had like a conversation about our thoughts on it. So we'll be talking about Zodiac. Well, Alex, on my end, I watched a classic that it was one of those movies that people tell you, you haven't watched that yet? Um, that was actually the category of the scavenger hunt that I'm doing right now that, that I pegged with this pick. Uh, I watched the original 12 Angry Men. Have you heard of that movie? Are you familiar with the movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you seen it? Um, I feel like, you know, there's a handful of movies I watched in college because it seemed like the right thing to do that I don't really, I didn't retain much knowledge of. <laughs> so if I have, I don't really remember it. Well, I, I need to go back and watch it. I'll refresh your memory. I watched the original, not the, not the remake, but uh, it made me want to watch the remake. So we'll talk about that. And then there's a new movie on Netflix, a new horror movie. So it might be one of the movies you watch this October as you make your way through uh Tours Halloween Kills. Uh, it's called Malignant. This is the latest James Wan movie. And I'm not a horror guy, but I watched it kind of like The Kill Time. And a lot of my friends were talking about it. So I wanted to kind of like be in the loop. And uh, I don't regret watching it. I actually, if nothing else, it's a good conversation piece, you know, for about 10 minutes. So I will devote those 10 minutes to telling you about Malignant on our After Hours show. So Malignant, 12 Angry Men, and then Zodiac. All that... And so much more awaits you on our Patreon channel. So if you're not a patron yet, check it out. Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. The Contrarian Supplements. Look at our tiers. See if you feel like contributing. See what we're offering. See which tier uh, fits your needs. And uh, just join the family. Throw us a buck. You won't regret it. You shan't regret it. And if you do, you can always just not do it the next month. But, you know. Test it out. You're not. You're not gonna want it. You're gonna keep wanting to give us that dollar. You're gonna stop getting a McDouble every month, or you know, for our international brethren, whatever the the cheap dollar item is at the local five and dine. You're gonna love it. And now let's welcome Ryan and Bartik back, so we can go into real talk. All right, real talk. Oscar, not snaps. Oscar <laughs> released as I mentioned. April 26, 1991, directed by John Landis, written by the uh, duo of Michael Berry and Jim Mulholland, based on uh, Oscar, the 1967 French film, and also which was that was based on a play. So a lot of source material there. I, I, I haven't seen the play nor the... Uh, uh, French film, but I want to imagine that Landis and Stallone took uh, some creative liberties, I guess I'll say. Uh, budget of $35 million, as I mentioned. Box office return of less than 24 so didn't really 
light the world on fire. But 12% on Rotten Tomatoes, despite that, two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. The question that needs to just be asked immediately, do any of y'all like this movie? <laughs> Bartek, you go first. I like this movie very much. Starting with the hot takes. 12%. What 12%? I like this movie too. And I did not know about the Rotten Tomatoes rating. And my instant thought, and I had to suppress it because I didn't want to ruin it for when we were doing this, but my instant thought was, this is not a 12%. Like, even, I don't know, like, I'm sure you guys hate it, but (laughs) this is not a 12% (laughs) at all. There's too much craftsmanship. There's too many good performances and consistency. When I think of a 12%, I think of an incoherent mess. This is not a 12%. You can argue it's a rotten, I don't care, but that, that is ludicrous. And I think it's because of the bias that is the people involved, which is John Landis and Stallone. And I think a lot of people look at that and just scoff. As you read in some of the reviews that were just like, oh, Stallone in a thing like this? No, thank you. And it's just like, okay, but there's also a rest of the movie there. And so... I like this movie very much. Bartek is even underselling it. Bartek, you have said over the years that this is possibly one of your favorites, if not the favorite film that we've covered on our podcast. My God. Yeah, it it was really up there. It really just came out of nowhere. It was a lot of fun. Um, there was just so much, you know, set up in the film, paid off. Um, it just felt really, you know, well put together. I was really looking forward to watching it again someday, and finally the time came. And did it still maintain that joy that it gave you that first time? Yeah, and it even added like a sense of nostalgia, because I have thought about this film so much over the years, and just hadn't gotten around to re-watching it. It was definitely a very different world the first time you watched it. <laughs> We're officially <laughs> in the post-apocalyptic uh, part of the timeline. Um I think it's funny, Ryan, because you said you guys probably hated it. And you reminded me of every now and then, Alex will bring you up and will be like, I'm sure Ryan would hate this. Or I'm sure Ryan hates this. <laughs> and is he right? Well, in this case, it's more of I, when I'm watching this, I'm like, I'm sure Ryan loves this. Just based on like some of our <laughs> DMs that we've had back and forth and the way we discuss things from time to time. And, you know, the episodes we've recorded together, I kind of get a, a feel for some of the things that work for you. Uh so, I don't know. I did not have a good time watching this, but as we were talking about it, it's just this really weird like sequence of happenings that I think are there's some things that are funny on their own. It's just all together. Uh, it kind of lost me. Um, we'll we'll get into it here uh, momentarily, Julio. Let's uh, let's go ahead um, and see. What the critics, the, those that liked it, were saying. You said you had to go to Letterbox for this. You had to dig deep to find some positive comments. Yeah, to find something fun. Uh, and by the way, I, I here's what I'll say before we actually, you know, <laughs> explore it in real talk. I would love to see either the original play or at least watch the French version because I think that I would enjoy it more. I have a feeling. I don't know how much it changed when it got translated into this version, but if it's something similar to what we got here, but with different talent at its center, I can only imagine that I would enjoy it more because I, I enjoy the bones of this movie, just not some of the execution. Uh, but okay, let's get to those quotes. Got three people from Letterboxd. Uh, five stars from MM132. 
who says, A lot of people seem to think Sly Stallone only does action hero roles, but they don't seem to get that he has range. And this is proof. Now, an action hero doing comedy roles isn't a new thing. Heck, Arnie did it. But I still think Sly sort of did it better. Except for Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, which he was tricked into doing. That is true. He was tricked into doing that. Was he? (laughs) Was that the Schwarzenegger thing? Yeah, Schwarzenegger made a whole big thing to say that he was going to do this movie and this was going to be his next like big thing like kindergarten cop and all these big things knowing that the script was garbage and knowing that Stallone and his people would try to steal it from under him brilliant wow. and they did <laughs> just Schwarzenegger just thinking three moves ahead uh Okay, next, also five stars from Immortal Knight, who says, This is a comedy of errors in all the best ways. Delightful to see Stallone at his most Italian, too. John Landis, greatest of all time for sure. What? Is this Stallone at his most Italian? (laughs) Was the what at John Landis being a good director? Because he has some incredibly loved films in his catalogue of work. I don't think that is necessarily something to scoff at. No, they said greatest of all time. Yeah, but for like for comedies I would imagine, right? Like maybe for of all films, maybe, who knows? We'll have to it's like Hanky, we'll have to imagine what they're saying. <laughs> I, I mean as someone who loves Animal House and um American Werewolf or he did Blues Brothers too. Yep. Like just Blues Brothers. I, I don't know if he did Blues Brothers two thousand, but I know he did. I'm pretty sure he did Blues. I, Brothers. I think he did too. Yeah. Yeah. No, calling him the 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 goat is that's a bit off rocker for me. But hey, we're not here to necessarily debate the merit of John Landis. We're here to discuss Sylvester Stallone <laughs> at his apparent most Italian. Well, he was in the Italian Stallion. Surely that was more Italian. <laughs> and he was in Rhinestone with Dolly Parton, so he might be Italian in that too. I guess the other title was Party Kitty and Studs, so maybe not. <laughs> All right, and then finally, four and a half stars from Sir Hatchporch, who starts by saying, disclaimer, no, this is not an April Fool's joke. I will never understand why this film received and receives so much hate, as I've loved it from the very first Mm -hmm. time I saw it, on a plane ride to Spain in the summer of 1991. I suppose if you're not into highly stylized period piece farces based on all French stage plays, this will be tough going for you. They're right. They're right. I, I, I don't think they're wrong in the sense that, yeah, if this type of comedy is not your thing, then it doesn't matter if it's Stallone or not at the center. <laughs> it's still not going to work. Yeah, I mean, Alex brought up Animal House. I hate that movie because I don't like any of those type of American comedies of that variety. But would I say it's a bad movie? No, it's great for what it is. And I think the same is here for Oscar. For what it's doing, it's the great great for what it's doing. Ah, well, yeah, here's here's I, the the bit, here's the big thing, and and I I think that because I'm still not sure how you guys feel about Stallone's performance in this movie, and that, that is something that probably is not going to surprise anyone. Certainly not Alex. It's that's the one thing that I just can't like. I tried, and he made me laugh maybe like a couple times, but overall, watching the movie, I was like, he can't. It's it was worse than when I was watching Tango and Cash. I'm like, he's just not funny. Every time that he tried to be funny, I was like, I, I'm watching a guy trying to be a comedy actor and he's just not pulling it off. That's how I felt. Now I, I'm curious, like, just about the three of you. Like, how do you feel about Stallone's performance? Because I can see how you could think that Stallone's performance is bad and still like the movie, mm. but I don't know if you can like it as much as you guys like it or, uh, without liking his performance. So kind of feeling like 
both you, Ryan and Bartek, actually might think that he's good in this, which is, you know, that will be like our probably our biggest difference. Okay. Well, what I mean, Alex, obviously, I haven't heard from you, but I imagine you think he's bad in this. Um, I'm not sure if I would go so far as to say bad, but I do also believe this was still in the time period. We talked about this in Tango and Cash, too, of mm. Stallone still not being realistic about what his expectat or his um, limitations, excuse me, uh, as an actor were. His abilities. Yeah, and um, I think that it's... He's trying to give a little, but he still is very protective of being Sylvester Stallone. So it, it just really it, it showed years later how good he is when not only the being realistic about his abilities, but also when he's willing to be vulnerable in something. And, you know, with yeah. uh, Rocky Balboa, Creed, for God's sakes, he got nominated for an Oscar for that. And then even with like Grudge Match, we talked about, there's like scenes of good acting he has in it. And I always watch movies like this from, you know, back when he was sly and wonder, you know, just if we were ever kind of robbed of like if this movie could have been better, if he would allowed himself to be vulnerable or to be the butt of a joke at some point in it. So like that's the type of stuff that always comes to mind when uh, specifically with this movie that I was thinking about the whole time. As far as him himself, yeah, he's kind of trying to box with some gods of the screen in certain parts, even as over the top as Marissa Tomei is. She's still Marissa Tomei and he's still Sylvester Stallone. So there's like, to me, a delineation, a clear divide between what they're able to do. And it's an interesting movie that he starred in considering the supporting cast. I don't think he's bad. I think there could have been more to it. And, um, I mean, a lot of the things, the faults I would attribute to the movie come down to like the writing and the pacing of it. So I'm somewhere between where Julio is and where I perceive you or y'all are going to be. Bartek, I think you got to go first because there's so much there that Alex has said that I just have to... It's one of the reasons why I wanted to come on. I always want to kind of unpack a lot of the Sylvester Stallone imagery and ideas of him and him in this movie. But you're you're probably, out of all of us, the biggest fan of the movie, Bartek, and you are a bigger fan of Stallone than I am. So where do you land on him in this? Yeah, it's not necessarily that I consider myself a big Stallone fan, but it just seems to be the case that I've enjoyed more movies of his than you have. Um, for me, in him in this film, it's not that he's you know perfect or anything like that. Um, he is the main character, but for what the type of film this is, where he is you know he's the center of all the action, um, and he's interacting with a lot of characters throughout the film. Uh, this almost is a sort of ensemble film. Like, you don't really have too many moments where anyone is monologuing, certainly not Sylvester Stallone. Um, so his performance and his, you know, uh, comedic sensibilities, uh, I feel would have to be uh, assessed alongside his supporting cast, like how he acts with everyone else in the film. And as our main character, he's the one that has the most dynamics. And I think that because all of the other uh, characters and actors in this film uh, did do a good job, you know, performed well. That was complemented by the fact that Sylvester Stallone um, was, I guess, a good team player with them. So, like, you have all these gags with uh, Connie and a lot of the other um, uh, mooks that, he, that work for him. Um, and 
yeah, they they work t- well together in for, in my opinion. Uh, so you have all those gags of like calling them in. He's angry. They pull out weapons, and then he just immediately like goes off on them. Well, not goes off on them in a very passive way of confiscating things. And it's you know a slowly paced uh, execution, hmm. um, but it's it feels very deliberate. I I can't really point out anything in this film with Sylvester Stallone's performance where I feel like a comedic intention didn't quite land the way that it was intended to. I feel like even if you think he's not, you know, the best performer, um, everything played out the way that they wanted to. Uh, and I see that as, you know, a success in a way. Yeah. I, you see, when we talk about Stallone, everyone's a Mr. Action star. I grew up with his action movies too. I grew up with bad ones that we people would say. Like, I grew up with Judge Dredd. I grew up with uh, Demolition Men, which I think is underrated. Yeah. And the first Rocky movie I saw was Rocky Balboa. And I don't think of his strengths ever as being the action star, because when I have viewed his action movies, I always feel there's a disingenuous nature in them. But he's a dramatic actor to me. I will Mm. always think of the first Rocky movie and Rocky Balboa and the Rambo movie, first Rambo movie, first blood and all that, the strength and Copland, the strengths of him as a performer is him being a dramatic actor and having vulnerabilities. And I think his image as the invulnerable, cool, muscly man has clouded those things. Like, Rocky is one of the first jumping off points of his career and Rocky's a very sensitive character. And he plays that really well in that movie, as he does in many other Rocky movies. Not all of them. If you want to really track how he is as a person, as a movie star, watch the, all of the Rocky movies and you see 100%, how his ego evolves. 100%. <laughs> and so here's how I view him in this movie. What makes him different in to me in this movie in comparison to what I think he is a bad comedic performer in Tango and Cash, because I also think Tango and Cash is not a comedy it is one that was made into a comedy in post-production. Like, they had to rework the film to make it into an outright comedy, and you can see that. But what makes him more of a stylized and better comedic performer in this, in comparison to Tango and Cash and Demolition Man and Stop Oh My Mama Will Shoot You, is he is on board. I think he does have humility in this movie. I think he is a team player. I don't think he's trying to outshine anyone in this movie. I felt that he understood the comedic assignment that was given to him, unlike in those other films in which those were either he was tricked into them or they started out as drastically different projects and they turned into something that he was not signed on for. There is no way he signed on to this movie not thinking it was going to be what it is. Unlike in Tango and Cash, and he isn't as a he's not just an actor, right? He's a writer and producer. Stallone is a creative voice, and he has always had to fight to get what he wants. And it is for the detriment and for the success of his projects. Read any behind-the-scenes stories of the Rocky or Rambo movies, and there's tales of him having to stand his ground and stand up for what he perceives to be the merits of the given film. And we have seen that fail as well with Tango and Cash. He believed the film to be the thing he signed up for, and he refused to budge. He was like, no, I want this film to be the creative vision that I saw it to be. And I think it's applied here in Oscar, in which he knows it's a comedy. 
And so he is doing his best to be on board. He is, I don't sense any ego from him. Yes, we have the big Stallone at the start, but like in his performance, I felt like he was willing to make fun of himself. I felt like he was willing to lean into his failings as, a, as an actor. I felt like he was willing to play slapstick. I thought he was truly aware of the project he was in. Thus, it was a better performance than him in Tango and Cash or him in Demolition Man. Because I love Demolition Man, but the comedy that's inserted in that movie from him is the comedy that he was used to from those action movies, while Demolition Man is a science fiction movie. Here, there's no trace of action. So he knows exactly what the assignment is. It is a comedy. I think that he is aware of being in a comedy. And I actually enjoy the the meta aspect of, of, of seeing somebody go for it. Because I agree. He is definitely... He knows he's in a comedy. And he's... I think it takes balls to put yourself at the center of a project where you are it. Like, you know, he is... I was going to say he's Oscar. He's uh, he's uh, he's the boss. He's Angelo. He's, you know, and mm. I think that, yes, he's surrounded by talent, but I still think that he is the central piece. And where I think that he may lack awareness is uh, kind of like what Alex said, like as far as his limitations, uh, he doesn't have that delivery that, that I want from this type of performance, from this type of character where, you know, you have... A, a movie that relies so heavily on dialogue and on like just rapid pacing and just going back and forth. I mm. I always felt like the kind of like the gears came to a grinding halt in in some instances when it was time for for Stallone to just deliver a, a, a big moment when it comes to dialogue and even you know I just I just don't think that it has a range or at least that he had that range back then uh, I mean Alex said yeah. you know, we, we did Grudge Match not long ago and Grudge Match is not a great movie and it's not like his no. his performance is great there but I did find that when he was trying to be funny in that movie he kind of like hit the marks more often than not and that could be just that mm. you know experience and all the years have kind of like taught him where to go you know, whereas like here, I just felt like he was doing a lot of yelling and a lot of just opening his eyes wide and just acting surprised. And, you know, when you have a real comedic actor. I thought actor, there was a lot more subtlety to see. I, I think there's an interesting thing. I was, since I have rewatched this and Bartek is rewatching it, you guys are watching it the first time. I was noting, is he as talkative as you think he is? And a lot of the time he is talking, but a lot of his physical comedy, a lot of the comedy comes from his physicality. And in that opening prologue scene, he has the look of someone who is just a schmuck. <laughs> he has just got this dumb look on his face. And I love the fact that the movie utilized this natural blank expression that Stallone has that looks a bit vacant and dull and dumb. And they used it for comedic effect. I thought him being a big guy, they also used that as a joke several times as well. Yeah, he doesn't have the comedic delivery with the dialogue. And let's be honest, it's because of his paralyzed upper lip thing that he's got going on he just naturally can't do the fast fire dialogue as well as tim curry can do it i mean talk about like a moment where you feel the the disparity and i i think that there's a there are three people that just nail the they're just perfect in this movie tim curry which is not surprising i think marissa tomei is just perfect too like as far as you know in her case and i guess in a way tim Curry's case is like it's not surprising because it's just uh, i think that they're kind of like playing to their personas and they're like nailing it and then uh guy that plays aldo uh it's it robert peter peter right yeah peter peter Rieger, Rieger. Peter Rieger. he was good yeah, yeah i think that he nails it and, and him in his case i was not expecting that because i'm really i'm not that familiar with him right but 
I felt that they those three performances kind of nailed the tone of a comedic performance for this movie, where it felt like it was it was a little bit stagey, you know, very much over the top, but it just it just blended with everything else. It works so well, and and yeah, you can tell in the, in the when they're playing off Stallone, just the different types of energy, and it just just never felt like they meshed well. Uh, there are worse performances than than Stallone's in this movie. People that seem more lost, and Alex kind of brought it up in Contrarian's Corner, or I think before we started recording, which is the the actress that plays Teresa. Which that was that's not even Horrible. that she's not funny. Horrible. Yeah, that's just Fucking her awful. kind of like. It feels like she's reading off cue cards or something. That so it's not like it's Stallone yeah. is the worst thing in this movie. It's just I don't think that he's as funny as he needs to be. I before we get to the worst actors, because I actually have one that I dislike more so, and Bartek knows very well because I complained about it in our discussion on our podcast. But yeah, I think there's a question though, right? Where can how can someone of Stallone's stature evolve their career? in any way when we have such set standards because yeah this isn't the type of comedy he's done and yeah he's not aware of his limitations but at the same time he has to especially at this point in his career try out different things or he'll forever be stuck and become irrelevant like many other action stars of the 80s and he has a big enough catalogue of work where he can try different things and see I appreciate that he did try. Unlike in Tango and Cash, in which he's standing still and refusing to participate, and he's a killjoy in that movie, yeah, he's not the best choice for this for this particular role. But I do commend him on actually trying, because how is he supposed to know limitations if for a decade he's done the Rocky movies, where it's comfortable and safe and he's in charge? He's supposed to explore the different things, and we see many actors fall on their face trying to do things, but I don't think that this is the the massive slip on the banana peel that everyone says that this is. This is not a 12% movie. I agree with that, but that's... I know Alex said he didn't like the script. I think the script is great. Because I don't, I don't know how much it differs from the from the French version and from the play but I, I i like this kind of stuff the this sort of plays where there's just like the confusions the comedy of errors and things you know happening in confusion and going in people going in and out and misunderstandings and all that stuff and maybe that's part of my frustration also with with stallone's performance because because i am i'm watching the events unfold and i am hearing the dialogue and i'm like this is good this is funny but for some reason i'm not laughing you know, and I, I, so I think that there is, uh, mm. yes, Stallone has, of course, he should. I think every performer, if they want to spread their wings and try something else, they, they, by all means, they should. You know, but I think that if I was an investor, I'd be like, are we sure we want to like do this? Do we really want to putting mm. all this, invest all this time and money and talent, and kind of like pin it on? somebody who is not the best choice for the job. I mean, I think it's great that that he tried, and I don't have a problem with that, but I can't pretend that uh, that he's funnier than he actually is, you know? It, I, I think yeah. that it's just a separate thing. It's like, good on him for trying, bad on the producers for casting him. Well, I think it's that time in everyone's career where they're desperate. John Landis, we've made several jokes about it, but he was a pariah in the industry, at this point, for the Twilight Zone movie, Mm -hmm. in which he's responsible for the death of people, and he handled that situation really poorly. He marked his career, and he buried buried himself. And so, 
this is the point of a career where people are trying anything or doing anything. Stallone is in that point of his career in which can he keep being the action star? Can you keep doing that? Can one actually escape that? And I wonder if now we're more accepting when he returns back to more dramatic performances, if one, we are more comfortable with it because he has had the decline for so long, or two, the dramatic performances we're comfortable with him doing are things that we're familiar with, Rocky Balboa and Creed. We already like that character, so we're Copland bound to also. give him a shot. Copland is like kind of the hidden brilliant performance of Stallone. Yeah. Barely anyone talks about it. Well, it's all. That's also. Th- there's a whole different level to that discussion because it's different than Balboa Creed, and uh, in the sense of that's like a absolutely just like loaded cast. Which up until that point, that's another thing that uh, Stallone. Obviously, this is a loaded cast, but in the sense of Stallone going head to head with other titans of that genre, it's. Uh, but he obviously Copland is great, is what I'm trying to say, and Stallone is great something that we've learned yeah i was gonna ask you though alex you're the i think you're a stallone fan yeah oh yeah do you think he could at this time in his life and career with the image that we had of him actually transition out of that quickly or do you think the way that things have panned out was the only way it could happen that's a good question uh we're referring to 1991 right the time period yeah late 80s early 90s uh there's really no coming back from rocky five that that was like a clear (laughs) um to me, Rocky Five was the clear statement of like how he viewed himself type thing. So it's a lot easier said than done. And it, you always wonder, too, if this thing had been a, a sensation, like a box office smash. It, it wasn't a bomb, but it obviously didn't recoup its entire budget. And you got to believe if this had been big, then we could have been talking of Stallone as one of the... You know, Stallone was never going to be a rom-com guy, but something like this, he could definitely fit into this kind of role. Uh, My issues with the movie and kind of my critique of how I read his performance in it doesn't change the fact that he has an innate charisma, a ridiculous drawing ability for when he's on screen, it's just something different that you can't teach. And you lump that in with the fact of this guy's being funny now. That I mean, that's sweeter than you who, or it should be at least. But I think... It took so long for him to not be Rocky, and then he wasn't, and then what revived his career was being Rocky again. I think Schwarzenegger got way more attempts at bat than Stallone did, and they you would think they yeah. were both kind of pigeonholed into the same position. You would have thought that Arnold was going to be the Terminator forever, but man, in the 90s, people were throwing fucking everything at Arnold Jr., and you know, just think yeah. of the things that he was... the attempts he was given. I think it was a combination of the things I was saying about Stallone at this point in his career and also the timidity of audiences to buy him as a leading man in a comedy or more of a lighthearted movie. With that being said, and I love Arnold, but, and my issues with this movie aside, this is way more bold than Kindergarten Cop. This type of movie that (laughs) you're paying homage to you know the golden age of hollywood also with like the there are things in this movie that um sly obviously was just not trained in from an acting perspective some of the shots were it's just him you know looking past the camera and supposed to be emoting it you know what's on the other side like you mentioned in 
uh, was really fashionable in movies of the past. He doesn't seem entirely comfortable, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't have gotten there. And I think, you know, with this movie, with the people that he probably learned from and the people he worked alongside with in this, I don't like the movie as much as you or Bartek per se, but I kind of wish it had gone better. I kind of wish it had done better because you always kind of wonder what could have been on the other side of this forced alone if this had made, you know, $250 million at the box office. But then, I mean, you would have to wonder, I guess, kind of in this sort of alternate reality, and maybe that's that's something that Ryan was alluding to. It's like, do you get Copland? And do you get the vulnerability of Rocky Balboa? His ego just gets bigger. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, you know, are his performances, the performances that we really like in more recent years, are they the result of him failing in movies like Oscar and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot? And, you know, all the, the things that didn't work out eventually, in a way, turn him into a more complex performer just because, you know. (laughs) <laughs> he grows as a human being like we all do as the years go by. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I can see that. Well, that's the beauty of it. Well, yeah, but, you know, if Oscar becomes a hit and then we just don't get Copland because he doesn't He have ends up that. like Tug Speedman and just, you know, making the same movie over and over <laughs> yeah. again type thing. Um, that's, that's, I mean, obviously both of y'all pose very interesting uh, questions around it. And, of course, it's history's yeah. played out the way it has, so... I'll say to put it, I guess the the bow on the sly discussion because there's a few other things I want to hit on here is that I'm surprised this movie doesn't have a bigger legacy than it has. After watching it today, that was my first immediate thought was this is a movie I tangentially knew about and had obviously no knowledge of, but with the cast it has, its place in history in terms of Stallone's career and the ambition it seemed to have had, I feel like this movie should have a bigger legacy than it does on either side of the coin. Mm-hmm. And again, when we give our scores at the end, there I, I know mine's probably going to be on the lower scale, but even if it's, I hate this movie, I love this movie, I feel that this movie's legacy probably deserves to be more than just kind of a blip. More than just being lumped in with his more infamous entries, because that's like what why we covered it on our podcast. This is for what we do on our podcast back in the day, this is truly an unappreciated masterpiece. And, you know, people hear those two words and they think these things, but what we mean is this is a film that's unappreciated and it is a masterstroke at what it's trying to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% successful, but like you said, I, I think that this deserves a bigger legacy than it does and a bigger reputation than how you guys and uh, many people in the past have discussed it in just the run of films of his that were just bad and then you move on and there's nothing else to it. Yeah, as as much as he is front and centre when you talk about this film or when you think about it, I, in my head, really can't get over just the fact that this film very much is a sort of ensemble thing, mm. where even though he is in ev- almost every scene, almost the focus of every scene, I just think of like all of the you know other characters in it that you know do so mm. well and... You know, we're like almost 40 minutes into like the real talk and it's it's all been about, you know, Sylvester Stallone and like his uh, history as an actor and a- acting histories like that isn't something that I really focus on as much. I try to just look at the film, you know, w- what's in the film. I watch the film. What do I get out of it? I don't. There's obviously like context going into it, but I I feel like I'm much better at looking past that than, well, not much better, but I tend to look past that a lot more. Mm. 
Yeah, and I try to do that with Stallone because when we did Tango and Cash, you know, I was just judging it as a performance of, of its own. Just like, okay, I don't care what he was making at the time. Is he entertaining me in this movie? No, he wasn't in that one. Did he entertain me in this movie? Yes, he did. But I think a, a lot of the reviews and a lot of people do walk in with that context of who this actor is and they judge the movie because of that. And that was a that's a byproduct of how movies are made. They sell you on the name, they sell you on the faces, and you have expectations walking in. So, Bartek, you called out that this has been a sly-dominated uh, discussion. Um, so want to hit on just couple, some of the other big players in this uh, as we look towards the, the end of this. Uh, your thoughts on Marissa Tomei in this? I know I kind of spoke to my feelings in the first half. I do believe that she was giving and being all that she could be in this uh, and that it may come across as kind of silly at some points, but uh, I really enjoyed her performance. So I'm just starting with you. I'm curious what your thoughts were. Yeah, with, uh, with her character in particular, um, I, you can look at a lot of the characters in this film and see, like, okay, this is the way that this character is being played. You know, the, there's um, Aldo. He's the uh, the butler archetype kind of thing, so you hit a lot of the uh, butler notes. With her character, I feel like there's a bit more um, malleability to how you can do that performance. So, honestly, when I think back, of, when I thought back on this film over the years... Um, her performance was one that I didn't quite remember as well because um, there's just so many ways you could have done it. And obviously, you do the performance, you do one performance, you have to pick a way to do it. Um, and yeah, the, the way that she melded, like, you know, childlike uh, mannerisms, uh, this sort of guilt, the person trapped in a gilded cage kind of thing. Um, it was really interesting uh, to almost experience for the first time because I didn't quite remember it so well. Ryan? I find Marissa Tomei to be excellent in this film. Um, and I find that I have to stop myself from thinking about her in context as well because for my entire life growing up, she was that actress that somehow won an Oscar that she shouldn't have won. <laughs> and... I would always hold that against her, even though I have never... All I knew her from was Seinfeld as herself, and I enjoyed her in that. <laughs> so I like her in this movie because they actually give her comedic stuff to play. I really loved the touches of how she would physically hold herself to kind of give you this feeling like she is related to Sylvester Stallone. Like, I never questioned that they weren't related at any point, like I did with Terry Hatcher in <laughs> Tango and Cash. I did buy that they had this dynamic, and that came down from a physical performance as well. I really loved when she was with uh, Tim Curry in the, in the uh, you know, outside on the patio. And atrium. he's telling her... On the atrium, <laughs> how expeditious of you. And so I appreciated she did these really great facial motions and movements where she was kind of pushing her face really deep into her chin, like this very, like, making herself kind of snotty, like, ugh, I don't really care. But then once Tim Curry started to woo her, she really leaned in. And, like, a lot of the stuff that was going on with her character, the arc of her becoming the brat to someone who can actually find genuine love was actually more so told in her face rather than dialogue. 
Julio, rounding out the the quartet, what were your thoughts on Marissa Tomei in this? <laughs> the quartet of praise for Marissa Tomei. Yeah, I thought yeah. I thought she was great. The moment that she came in, like I knew she was in the movie, I didn't know who she was playing. I when he started talking about his daughter, I assumed that was going to be her. And so the moment that I saw her, it was just like, you know, she was just lighting up the screen. So that was that was great. I think I think she's fantastic. I I kind of like said earlier, she's in my mind that's kind of a, a Marissa Tomei role. You know, it's not like this huge, massive mm. uh, departure in a way that, you know, Stallone is playing something that, that's more of a departure from what I expect from him. And in her case, it's like, oh, it's just, it's kind of like this somewhat innocent, funny character. And and, and she does it well. Like, uh, I, it's exactly what I expected. And that's not a bad thing in this instance. It's just, it was, it was great. Kind of, you know. Is this the type of role she plays comedically? Because I thought in My Cousin Vinny, she was like aggressive and loud. Yeah, but I'm thinking of, uh, of stuff like, uh, you know, she has this movie with Robert Downey Jr., uh, Only You, where she is, uh, mm. you know, it's just like a 90s romantic comedy. And she's also playing this sort of like wide-eyed girl that, you know, wants to, mm. she believes in faith and she travels around the world looking for her soulmate. And I... I just feel like I've always gotten that that vibe from Mercy Tomei in when she's playing, you know, the, the romantic comedy roles, not like in something like The Wrestler, but uh, and so that's why this kind of like seemed to fall in line with that more so than yeah than the motor mouth aggressive uh, uh, character from My Cousin Vinny. Uh, it was good, Marissa Tomei, in the way that the Tim Curry performance is good. Tim Curry, where he's just like, yeah, it's mm. Tim Curry, and he's doing he's hitting those notes and it's hitting them so well, you know. So those were like the two characters, the two actors that I was the most familiar with, and they did exactly what I wanted them to do, and that was great. Yeah, I love it. I love that when actors do exactly what you need of them to do. Like you could say Tim Curry is using his shtick that we see him use in everything, <laughs> but by God, is it a fucking good shtick? <laughs> he knows that that smile makes you laugh. No one else can do it. No one else can do it. Now, Alex and I were pretty, uh, uh, I guess intense about our dislike of the actress or the performance of the actress that played Theresa. But apparently I picked up two things. One, Ryan, there's an actress or an actor that you think did even a, a worse job. And then Bartek, I don't know how you feel. Do you like the, the, the performance of uh, the, the Theresa character or, or do you also feel like she, she was the one that was out of place here? <laughs> she was definitely wooden, but, and Ryan knows this. I kind of, uh, I kind of enjoy those kind of performances. I, I very much uh, like enjo- uh, laughing at those sort of things. So I, I don't necessarily uh, fault her performance, even though objectively, yeah, it was very, um, as you say, very wooden. She's terrible. Uh, <laughs> but she's the only character in the entire film that has no comedy to them as a character. That's a big thing too, yeah. She literally stands out because, writing-wise, she has no comedy to her. There's no quips. There's nothing. She gets nothing comedically in a film in which every character has a comedic side to them. So her performance stands out even more so because you're not chuckling or laughing or having any high energy that we've been delivered. She is the only person in the movie that isn't there to have any comedic moment at all. That's right. she's... She's not my least favorite, though. <laughs> I be- uh, one of the big things I was wondering was, I wonder how Ryan will feel about this character the second time round. I hate the guy who plays Anthony so much. I oh, do not like awful. his performance. 
he is the only one out of them, and we, you know, Chuck Stallone, and he's he's the only one in the movie that feels like an a modern day actor just doing lines of dialogue. Everyone else feels like they're buying into going back in time and emulating. He's the only one to me that never felt like he felt like a guy in 1991 on set trying to do 1991 style jokes or deliveries or mannerisms. I never bought him and his character by design is frustrating, but he never, he was never real to me. Stallone was real to me. He reminded me of Humphrey Bogart in some of his comedy movies back in the day. Here, this guy, I, I could not stand him. Her, she's a terrible actress, but her character by design is not at all funny. This guy was supposed to be funny, never made me really laugh outside of the reaction he has to two funnier characters, the Fanucci's. He he always drags the movie down for me, and I just I don't like him. I, he feels out of place. Uh, I agree, he, but also uh, he has one of my favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> I actually wrote it down because it's when uh, he still believes that Teresa is, is uh, Stallone's daughter, and she's telling him that she's not. And then he replies, does he know he's not your father? And that I think that was the first time I laughed in the movie. <laughs> Mm. It was, of course, it's a combination of the line, the setup, and just, you know, the performance. He didn't, he didn't botch it there. But I agree. He, I think it's telling that I was not rooting for his character at all. And I think I'm supposed to. I think that the movie is supposed to make you want to see this guy succeed. Hopefully not to the detriment of, of Angelo, but I just wanted him to lose. Like, I, I, I don't know that he is meant to be as much of an antagonist. I think you're supposed to admire how resourceful he is. And, and that would be fun, you know, part of the fun of seeing him button heads with Angelo, who's also very resourceful. But instead, yeah, I was annoyed at the fact that he just kept... I mean, you, you, you said he's a weasel, mm. but he's not he's not a weasel that you root for, at least not a, a weasel that I was rooting for. So, uh, no. yeah, I can see it. He didn't drag the movie down for me, but I don't think the character worked the way that it was intended, at least in my experience. It sounds like you agree, Alex. Yeah, the, I, I think he just... The, the actor, I, I don't remember his name off top... And- uh, but Vincent Spano, I think. There you yes. go. Thank you. Every time Anthony was on screen, I was just like begging for uh, Rygert or Palminteri run in. I was just like, just get someone entertaining on the screen right now. I can't take this anymore. Please have Palminteri pull another chicken leg out of his pocket. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was that was good. I'm so glad because when we covered it on our show, I got the vibe from Bartek and the other guests that we had on that I was being too mean to this guy. And I'm like, no, I just think he's not very good in this role. And I'm glad to hear that there are some people out there who kind of agree. Like he kind of, he feels out of place. It just feels like he's not in in step with everyone else. And again, we had a whole massive conversation about how Stallone may or may not be in right for this movie, but he felt like he was in rhythm with every other actor in comparison to this guy. I, th- I think maybe the writing might be a factor in that too, because he is uh, this sort of recurring antagonistic character who isn't as goofy as you know everyone else in the film, and that kind of demands that his scenes be a bit longer to have a bit more you know back and forth dialogue, where he mm. he is opposing our main character in various ways and so you could think back and laugh at like oh yeah it was funny when he revealed that he's been stealing money from our main character twice um but like like julio said before it's it's like individual lines can be funny but the the, the overall performance um wasn't quite in line with everyone else as ryan said 
And I think it's an uh, managing levels because he's playing a sleaze, yet he's supposed to be like Julio says. I feel like we're supposed to find him a, an adorable sleaze. Yeah, he's he's naive in certain scenes. And that's why I lean towards someone like Kevin Bacon or Michael McKean a bit more than Christian Slater, because I always think Christian Slater plays like fucking psychopaths for the most <laughs> part, so or, like fucking weirdos. You're but, not like, entirely wrong. <laughs> but the general consensus is this guy feels his performance is just amplifying what we know of his character to be in the script, which is the generator of drama, not comedy. Yeah. And in the comedy film, it takes you out when you just notice this entity that exists to propel the drama and they're not making you laugh while doing it. I mean, and there are some people, there's some actors just that they're not, you know, not everybody can do everything. And some people just can't play certain characters. And, 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 you know, maybe he just doesn't have, I don't think I've seen him in anything else. And maybe he's just, as an actor, he doesn't have the charisma that you need to play this type of character and get the audience on your side and get the audience kind of like laughing with you, you know? So it, it could just be that. I mean, again, I would love to see this on stage and just see what it's like when you just have, you know, actors who are doing a play freed from the concerns of Hollywood marketing <laughs> and just, just see how that, mm. that story and that script just lives kind of on, a, on its own or, or, or more on its own than, than it does here. Well, bringing this bad boy home. Now we move to the, the ratings. Um, as listeners know, I always go on a letter scale I think I have lightened up a little bit. I don't think at any point was I ever going to give this an F, but I think I've lightened up uh, after hearing some uh, conflicting perspectives and also just kind of talking about some of the things in the movie I did like made me realize that, um, you know, a barometer I always go off of is if someone asked me about a movie, would I tell them not to watch it? And that's always like huge. And there are so few movies, Hancock being one, I would tell someone, do not watch that movie. It's a waste of your time. This is not a waste of time. And in some cases, there's some really positive things to it that you could walk away from it enjoying the time you spent with it. So for that, important to keep in mind and that I'm not also as over the moon about it as our uh, Australian brothers here, but I'm going to go with a C, Dead Center. That's where I'm sitting on this, Julio. What, uh, where is it ranking on your star scale? I'm going to land on two stars. Two stars. Movie 43 gets more than this? <laughs> Get the fuck out I, of here. I laughed this with Movie 43. tries to actually be a fucking movie for a start. Jesus. I mean, you're talking about a movie that does what it wanted to do. Tim Curry deserves more than this. Tim Curry, <laughs> Tim Curry gets five stars. Marissa Tomei gets five stars. And the dude that played Aldo gets five stars. Stallone. I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to do this. I'm like, I won't bring up Movie 43 at all during this discussion <laughs> until he does the rating. Because I know it's going to be fucking bullshit. Because no way is this lower than Movie 43. Jesus. Listen, I, I think that one of my main like points of contention is that uh, unlike Bartek, I don't see this as an ensemble piece. This is a Sylvester Stallone vehicle where he has very, very strong support. But it's still, in the end, this movie is good if you take Stallone out. But the problem is Stallone is there and he is there to stay. And we talked about it. I heard your arguments. <laughs> I acknowledge the the courage and the necessity for Stallone to do this at that point in his career. But like I said, I don't think that that makes the performance any better for me. It just makes it, you know, in the context of his life, I can just go, yeah, good for him because he did it and good for him because it didn't, it didn't kill his career. And now all these years later, we can look back on it and go like, hey, 
it worked out in the end. But none of that makes mm. me laugh, and none of that makes me like you know not wish that there was somebody else playing Angelo uh, Parmesan. So in the end, I, I that lowers it to two stars, uh, especially and in a way maybe even because I feel that the script is so much stronger, and I should have been laughing so much more, but I just wasn't. And and again, as crazy as it sounds, movie forty three made me laugh consistently. <laughs> so Jesus. How about you guys? How do you rate your movies? I know you don't rate them really, but if when you have to, I don't remember what you did last time. Bartek, what do you want to do? Where do you where do you want to land on this? What do you want to rate this for yourself? And what do you have to say? Uh, as a rule, I really don't do numbers or letters for ratings because just too many complications, too much you know, thinking back is. kind of stuff. That's why on unappreciated masterpieces we gave abstract ratings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I really like this movie. I think that even on top of it being a comedy, I just have a really good time sitting down watching it. I had a smile on my face, um, both for waiting for the lines that I remember that were really funny, lines that I'd forgot about, and obviously the lines that I never really thought about. Um, it was really a joy to come check it out again. Again, I think that this film does have uh, an ensemble nature to it, and that is complemented by the fact that this film is based on a play, something that was originally a play, um, which itself is a thing where, you know, actors, you have to work together to make each other look good, and this film has a lot of that going on. Um, and again, the fact that this is based on a play, uh, I feel translated well here. I mentioned earlier in the Contrarian's Corner the thing about how that main room felt like the hub of the film, and you got a really good sense of the geography of the film. Like, oh yeah, yeah, from from this entrance point, Marissa Tomei's room's about here, the atrium's there, the library's there, kitchen's there. Um, I think that it's just a really fun film to get invested in. Um, and that is why I recommend it. I think that it's comedy, has, it has some very good lines, the actors work well together, and you can feel good while watching it. And obviously, subjectivity, not everyone will feel the same way, but that's what I feel is the strength of the film. I do have a rating system. Mm -hmm. I give this film yum yum. I knew which it. Which means good. <laughs> and <laughs> because I host another podcast that's uh, Star Trek... <laughs> Discovery rewatch podcast as well as a Babylon 5 and we measure things on yum being bad and yum yum being good there's no in between there's no half yums <laughs> I give this a yum yum I thought it was a very entertaining film I laughed quite a lot I pointed at the screen a few times being like look there's a neat little detail in the background that's happening it made my brain active. It did not drain my life energy like Tango and Cash did or other Sylvester Stallone-driven projects or comedies. I And just outside of that, I thought the filmmaking and the attention to detail was very present here. I also get an enjoyment out of it because it is a film that is unappreciated. We're talking about it. Isn't there kind of an excitement you get when you've kind of stumbled across a movie that you go, huh... This feels like it should have more of a legacy than it does. But oh, maybe yeah. me appreciating that gives me the ability to give it a legacy for myself. Whoa. <laughs> so so that was Oscar, the, the four-man power trip on Oscar. Uh, so, Ryan and Bartek, thank you all so much for being with us. Let's uh, Now's the point where we throw it over to you. Y'all tell us what you do and where we can find you. Bartek, hit him with a spiel. Do-de-doom. 
Uh, we are Spitting Polish Presents. Likingly, because we are always spitting when we both happen to be Polish. Isn't that right, Ryan? Say yes. That is correct, Bartek. My last name is Polish Slowinski. That's a Polish name. And mine is too. Kaspershak. Everyone say it. Kaspershak. There you go. I tried. I, think, I was the only one that tried. I think that's the first time you ever tried to say it, Ryan. That's 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 just that's hitting me really hard. Just realizing that there's there's recorded evidence that says <laughs> otherwise, but that's okay. Fair enough. It's it's just what I remember. Uh, we do a show called Pictures Powwow every week. We either from my recommendation, Ryan's recommendation, or a listening person's recommendation, we review and discuss a film for the entirety of that episode. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Spit and Polish Presents, Facebook. Also, Spin Polish presents, and we upload to many, many different places. We have Podbean. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Plays, YouTube. Um, don't, sp- don't forget the Spanish streaming site. The Spanish streaming site, which, <laughs> as much as we say that phrase, Spanish streaming site, we never go and check what it's actually called. I think called like Ivux. Ivux. <laughs> something along those lines um yeah we release episodes every week uh, on our end it's on tuesdays i don't know where that is for rest of the world maybe mondays um and yeah please check us out and ryan we had the contrarians on a few times as well so you can check out how, how they've come on to our show and talked about movies and stuff in case you're needing more julio action in your veins <laughs> And Ryan, what was that yum yum thing you were mentioning? Yeah, again, I host another podcast, Yum Yum Podcast, which is a reference to the great line of dialogue from Star Trek Discovery. We are a Star Trek Discovery rewatch podcast, but while that's on break, we are rewatching and talking about the iconic 1990s sci fi series, Babylon 5. So, yeah, my wife and I, we go through it and. We've had Julio on. Would love to have Alex on, but Alex does not seem like a big sci-fi nut in any way outside of Stargate. That's all I know of your sci-fi tastes. Uh, I like Star Wars, uh, but <laughs> Stargate is... Uh, yeah, my dad was a huge fan of it, so it became an integral part of my household as a kid. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I don't want to come on there and just completely tank it either and be like, you know who my favorite character was? Kramer. <laughs> I think it would be funny even though it would be very much against the style of the show if you just showed up with no context especially a show that's as <laughs> complex as Babylon 5 and they just throw you like in the middle of season 2 with no idea well, what's going on <laughs> I have an episode in mind that we could have Alex on for and it does involve some professional fighting My I'll say it like that <laughs> it's called TKO the most infamous Perfect. episode of Babylon 5 <laughs> perfect perfect well yeah as ryan just said speaking of the young young podcast i i did do a recent guest spot on his show i was there uh, to discuss uh an episode of star trek discovery involving the doctor of star trek discovery a while ago and now i've returned to discuss the doctor of babylon 5 very different mm-hmm. characters but just as much fun yeah one's uh, well written and the other one isn't yeah <laughs> Uh, and then I also uh, I should be out by the time that this episode drops. I stopped by the We Watch a Thing podcast and I talked to Billy uh, about the movie Cliffhanger. Speaking of Sylvester Stallone, how like 
everything ties together in this world. A few weeks ago, I made him watch The Life Aquatic with Bill Murray because that was a movie that he had never seen. And then in, in return, he made me watch a movie I'd never seen, Cliffhanger. It was a good experience. I don't want to like spoil my feelings about the movie. It was a lively conversation, just like this one was. Stallone, I guess, always brings up that in people. But yeah, you can you can check me out on the We Watch a Thing podcast. Just more Stallone talk, because you know that's what you need from me. That's what you want. Uh, so that's that's other somewhat contrarian goodness that you can find. Alex, do you know what we're doing next? I don't. What are we doing next, Julio? <laughs> next, we celebrate yet another year of podcasting. Yes, it's time for the Embrys. 2021 edition all of you who have followed us for for a while know that that's how we celebrate our anniversary this year will be no different we're going to be handing awards oscar is the last movie that as that qualifies as as eligible for the embrace 2021 and uh now talk about actors supporting actors actresses supporting actresses and then like you know the special stuff like uh the ruffalo award for uh for you know the most impressive sex scene and uh well, I don't want to give it away, but we have an extra award that, that, that will be debuting on this edition. A lot of fun stuff. So uh, keep an eye out, keep an ear out for the Embrys following this episode, probably in a week or so. All right. With that in mind, Ryan Bartek, again, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, always a good time. I know the time difference is dramatic, but I really appreciate the effort that uh, you all make to do this with us. So thank you both for being on here. Thank you very much for having us. Absolute pleasure. I was looking forward to it. So that is going to do it for this episode. That's going to do it for Oscar. Uh, before we get out of here, we want to give a thanks to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Ruth Gieser. He's the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon page, on our merch. A renaissance man. You can check out his work on his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M I L D E M O N I O S.pe. You can also contact him on Twitter at mildemonios. Email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. Thank you, Hans, for all your support. And thank you to Ms. Zoe Perez, who helps curate our social media game. If you haven't already, be sure to go to facebook.com slash contrarian prime. Uh, like, subscribe, follow. I never know what the verbiage is on Facebook, it's all down anyway, so. Uh, Zoe makes some really cool videos uh, for for us there. She puts together some exclusive content for our Facebook page that we appreciate. And then also on Instagram, if you haven't already, at Contrarian Prime, give us a follow. Zoe will upload some uh, videos, interactive graphics, audio clips, all that good stuff. Zoe, we appreciate the work that you do for us. So with that being said, thank you once more to Ryan and Bartek for being on this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Knows, just